VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you so much for tuning into the program. It's Tuesday, August the 29th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams, you know it. He's produced the program. You'll be speaking with David when you pick up the phone. Give us a call. Get in the queue and on the air. If you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial, 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, it's toll-free, long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. Well, I was following along with the the girls, Team NL girls, under-16 baseball club out in PEI playing in the national championship. Came through the round robin, 4-1. and one, Looked pretty stout yesterday. A couple of tough losses. Go up against the Giants of Quebec and Alberta. Lost both, but pretty uh, entertaining and successful tournament otherwise, I would imagine. A couple of quick baseball notes, some legends of the game. On this date, 1977, St. Louis Cardinals' Lou Brock uh, broke Ty Cobb's 49-year-old career stolen base record with 893 when the Padres actually clipped the Cardinals 4-3. And also on this date, 1987, All-Star, legend, Hall of Famer, Nolan Ryan, playing for the Houston Astros, passed the 200-strikeout barrier for the record 11th time. Remains a record, as far as I know. In the 200-strikeout world, only two pitchers have done it eight straight seasons, Max Scherzer, who's still playing, and Hall of Famer, Tom Seaver. So some big names in baseball right there. Been a bit of a resurgence in Canadian tennis. You know, last year I would have said this, the golden era of Canadian tennis. We won the Davis Cup for the first time ever a very prestigious team championship this summer not so much necessarily so the u.s open has now begun it's the last grand slam of the calendar year and milos raonic former top 10 player in the world one of the biggest servers in the world playing in his very last u.s open by the sound of it got knocked out in the first round yesterday felix Auger aliasim who was in the top eight last year went to the elite top eight tournament at the end of the season has had a dismal summer he got knocked out yesterday in the first round by uh on seated McDonald McKenzie, I think is his name, or McKenzie McDonald, one or the other, an American. Out he goes. Denis Shapovalov not playing because he's injured. On the women's side, Leila Fernandez kicks off her U.S. Open today, made the finals not so long ago. And remember, 2019, Bianca Andreescu became the first Canadian man or woman to win one of the Grand Slams as the 2019 uh, U.S. Open champion. She's hurt too and out. Okay, moving away along. So... An interesting visit by the Deputy Prime Minister to the Port of Argentia yesterday. Tore the grounds and really touting and talking up the possibility for the old wind, the hydrogen, the ammonia projects, uh, many of which are going to get the green light here in the province. It really feels like we're on the doorstep of next wave of approvals. A couple of things. You know, when you have this project, amongst every other uh, wind, hydrogen, ammonia project, yet to be released from an environmental assessment, haven't gone through the entirety of the process yet, there's a couple of steps left for the province to adjudicate before anything gets off the ground, but yet the Deputy Prime Minister really talking big about the importance of the industry, what the role of hydrogen ammonia will play in the so-called transition. Feels a little bit premature, although I'm pretty sure, given Pattern Energy's very unique position, as the fact is in their first round, their first phase, they don't need any crown land. They have 6,000 acres of industrial and forest land that's actually owned by the port. They're talking about an investment of some $4 billion. And, of course, the feds are all in on this stuff, and they've talked about it many times. They point to the fact that the hydrogen tax credits will give breaks up to 40% of a project's total cost. The federal government actually put money to the port, some $38 million, to 
towards the $100 million port expansion that was announced just last month. So it does feel a little bit premature, even though I think the writing is on the wall. Given the MOUs that have been signed, given the appearance of many uh, provincial cabinet ministers and the premier with some of these hydrogen-related announcements, so it looks like there's a, maybe there's a lot we don't know, and as a rule, a lot of the politicking and governance goes on behind closed doors well before we get public notice of exactly where we stand, exactly where these various projects stand. On the Port of Port Peninsula, the folks who are vehemently opposed to World Energy GH2, there was an overnight email blast about their continuing and ongoing concerns with that potential project because we are talking about, you know, initially there were some 1.7 million hectares of crown land that could be up for bid. That number's whittled down dramatically. But what we don't know, and the Deputy Prime Minister talks about getting in on the ground floor, part of the infancy of this burgeoning industry, and the demand for the product seems to be quite strong, but when we don't know a whole lot about it, of course, that leads to legitimate concerns. It might lead to concerns based on the fact we don't have enough information to satisfy one question or another, but because we don't know much about it, you know, we can look back and talk about mining and the process for approvals. We can talk about forestry and the fishery and the oil and gas industry because we've lived it and we kind of know what it means. And even out in the port yesterday, Minister O'Regan talking about the importance of this growing industry or yet to actually officially growing industry would be reflective of the benefits coming to the province akin to Hibernia. Really? You know, we've got to break that down a little further because the question of what it's in it for us, because people, you can have absolutely concerns with environmental impact on water, flora, fauna, the, what would be the landscape peppered with windmills as opposed to what we're familiar with today. But the impact, like Hibernia, even when the province released the royalty regime surrounding it, and they pointed specifically to a 1,000 megawatt project, and they say, inside that hypothetical, that project would return some $3.5 billion over the course of 30 years to the province. Lots of construction jobs. You know, it varies based on the size of the projects, but one of the problems that may come to pass, because these companies aren't going to collegially stand back and say, well, no, you go first. No, 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 please, you go first. Every company with the capital behind them will be absolutely wanting to be the first out of the gate and the first at the finish line to start producing and exporting the product. Okay, so the what's in it for us? Let's talk about the numbers a little bit because I don't think it adds up to the impact that High Bernie would have had insofar as transfer uh, royalties to the provincial coffers and then onshore job creation, the expanded tax base, the amount of money paid to people working in the industry. So let's talk about it. Crown land use fees. So there's an annual charge of 3.5% of the market value of these reserved lands. So the good protection for us there is they're not selling crown land because if one of these projects goes sideways or upside down, the people who bought the land will then be able to apply to use it for whatever other foreseen potential project. So good to have a lease fee in place. The wind electricity tax. 4,000 per megawatt on install capacity. Then there's an annual charge payable at in-service. What we don't know enough about there is exactly what the implications on our own electrical grid will be with any of these projects. You know, excess power generated or created, what becomes of it? We've had people long wondering about the concept of net metering, if whether it be my ability to install solar panels or my own wind turbine or any other form of alternative energy creation and the ability to send it back to the grid 
and get some money in pocket. There was a net metering program brought to bear. It was very limited in scope. Very few people were going to be able to take full advantage of it. But what does it mean for these big players? They might not be able to use all the energy they create, electricity that they generate, for a variety of reasons. So what does it mean to me as a normal everyday ratepayer? Okay, water use fee. So there's a water use fee and there's water royalty. In the water use fee, there's a fee of $500 per 1,000 cubic meters of water licensed and used. The fee drops to $50 per 1,000 meters cubed of water licensed and not used. And this will be applicable to all of these hydrogen facilities across the board. The royalty. Because it was hard to, I think, come up with a number of exactly where the sweet spot was for any of these types of royalties. Again, we know what it looks like in the offshore. They're working on potential for offshore wind and what a royalty and some of the regulatory issues might be. But in this one, because water's precious. Now, this comes from an already established industrial reservoir of which World Energy GH2, for instance, says that they don't need all the water they're in. But here's the royalty number. So after the water use fee, there's a bunch of rankings. Not to get too technical because I admittedly don't have the technical chops to break it down in full, but there's three different tiers. So what they're talking about is a revenue over cost index. So at the rate number one, it's 10%, and that's applied after one, time, one times of cost recovery, because there's the crux of the matter. The water royalties do not flow to the province until the proponents, the companies, recover their, their initial investment in full. That defers it well down the line. Just stick with Royal Energy for a second. We're talking about some $12 billion. That's a lot of revenue to come in the door before the water royalty kicks in. And then at the next rate, after they've recovered twice their investment, the water royalty kicks in at 20%. And once they recover three times their investment, it rises to 25%. Cost recovery of three times. I mean, that would make these businesses enormously profitable. We don't know what the appetite for hydrogen and the price that anyone would be billing, willing to pay. We do know there's an energy loss with moving it from, say, for instance, the port of Stephenville or the port of Botwood or anywhere else to markets in Europe. Primarily, we're talking about Germany. We know it comes at a pretty high cost because the green hydrogen is looks like it's the most expensive of all the hydrogen options. So, yeah, there's something in it. And there's absolutely going to be thousands of construction jobs. And I do get the distinct feel that we are nudged right up against since the next wave of approvals. And if you're all in or all out and would like to talk about it or try to dig into the numbers a little further, we're happy to take them on. And we mentioned Crown Lance had yet another good conversation with Clarenville lawyer Greg French. Really an absolute wealth of knowledge in the Crown lands and where some of the potential solutions lie. The province, for some reason, seems unwilling to move on this. You know, voted against the private member's resolution tabled back in May by Plyman Forsey. They put in three proposed potential solutions that have been not very widely well received based on people who are working on the issue, including Greg French. And there's going to be a bunch of you out there listening this morning, and unbeknownst to you, where you live, the house that you live in, is sitting on a piece of crown land. So that conversation's not gone away. Let's keep going now. Let's go to the air, or even on the tarmac to start. We've seen a lot of big problems faced by the air-traveling public in this country. It seems to have been a little bit better a summer regarding travel, but there's still the issue of delays and cancellations and sitting on the tarmac for extended amounts of time as they wait for ground crews or gates to open or whatever the case may be. In the United States, the federal government has fined American Airlines $4.1 million 
for dozens of instances where passengers were kept on board with no chance to get off extended ground delays. So American owes half of that in the next 30 days. They gave the airline credit for the other half, about $2 million, because they had paid compensation for these delayed passengers. Now for realistically and context, uh, 43 domestic flights, and that's for at least three hours plus sitting on the tarmac. That's 5,821 passengers in total. That only represents less than 1% of the flights uh, between 2018 and 2021 for American Airlines and American Eagle, one of their offshoots. 7.7 million flights for those two groups over the course of 18 21, but paying a big fine. We don't do enough of that around here. And in the airport world. So we heard from a resident of Stephenville last week talking about what might not be on the table regarding the Diamond Group and their want to purchase and to operate the Stephenville Airport. As of last Friday, the deal has been finalized, monies have been transferred, and away we go. Mayor Tom Rose was on the program yesterday talking about what he knows about the deal, given the fact not only the mayor of the municipality, but sits on the Airport Authority Board. Okay. A couple of numbers, just for clarification. So the purchase price was... $6.90. There was numbers used by Mayor Rose, like $2 million in liabilities have been uh, covered by the Diamond Group. That number is $1.1 million. The line of credit has been paid off, the line of credit offered by the province, and that's gone away. No matter whoever comes to play at Steamville, that's gone. So the questions are, you know, what are the plans? And yesterday the mayor said, based on what he understands, and we'll see if we can get some Tom and Carl Diamond in the next day or two, just one more time to dig in a little further. So the manufacturer of these cargo drones, 117 feet long, 80 feet wide, carrying up to 52,000 pounds of cargo, they're going to proceed. It's a drone called the Hercules. Then it's commercial aviation. That's the real big one. I mean, as an international airport with the runway capacity that it has, it's a real shame that it's been so sluggish at the Steamville International Airport, but Mr. Diamond says he's committed to move, continue down that path. Then it's money for the new fire hall. Then it's money for uh, runway lighting upgrades and what have you. The $1.1 million, because when Mr. Diamond himself made these announcements back in 2021, September the 9th, the, they seemed so lofty that, of course, the expectation and the bar was raised extraordinarily high not based on anybody's, you know, hyperbole surrounding what might be, but based on exactly what Mr. Diamond himself said. So people, two things, either thought, wow, these are extraordinary plans, this is going to be a real economic shot in the arm for the region, and number two, that sounds out of reach. You know, so the skepticism kind of ruled the day. And I guess human nature says that when it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. But now Mr. Diamond says he's committed to move forward. But then you wonder where the money's going to come from. So, you know, there's a variety of ways to get money in this world. The $1.1 million that has been covered, there's a report in the uh, business news website, All Newfoundland and Labrador, uh, they do great work, saying that there was a deal between Mr. Diamond and a fellow from uh, Saskatoon, his name is Matthew Popple. He won $55 million in the Lotto Max a couple of years ago. And so he is part of this loaning of the money. Uh, Diamond as the mortgager, the borrower, and Popple as the mortgagee, the lender. Okay. Mr. Diamond says he's going to move on and to bring some of the required hangers in to entice additional aviation, commercial aviation travel. But then with the other investments that he's talking about, we're talking about a couple hundred million dollars. Again, his number, not mine. So, yes, fine, wherever you can get money, raise money, whether it be from an individual like Mr. Popple or the more traditional markets that have the actual capacity to lend anybody $200 million. So, 
for folks in the area, at this moment, it's not costing the province anything. It was a liability for the town of Stephenville. They were, in essence, funding the operations of the Stephenville International Airport. So with nothing left on the table for us as taxpaying citizens, whether we have Stephenville or the province at large, if we're not on the hook for anything, then I suppose we can cross our fingers and hope that these very lofty plans come to pass. So I guess we'll see what the future holds, but if you want to chime in on it from any angle, we can do exactly that. All right, how are we doing on the phone, Dave? wanted to get to another couple. Quick update. So I had a call yesterday about the universal dental care and when it's going to be extended to different groups beyond the under 12 and under 18. It looks like the portal will be open very shortly for seniors, those with disabilities, by the end of this year. But I'm told it's going to be much quicker than that, which is good news. And then for the rest of us who meet the income threshold, which is income less than $90,000 a year, that'll be by the end of 25. Good news for seniors out there, 75 years of age and older. We've been talking about the need that they need to get a medical exam to re-qualify for their driver's license. And it was money out of pocket. Now, coming from the Seniors Advocate Office, a Seniors Advocate Office in conjunction with the uh, Department of Health Community Services, Children, Seniors, and Social Development, as of now, drivers, seniors, 75, ages, 75 years of age or older in the province, effective immediately, physicians will now bill MCP directly for the service instead of charging the patients. Good news. So this is gonna be retroactive to the 1st of April of this year. So if you've been charged, for this service, you can be reimbursed up to $100 um, the, of the amount, and that will be done with through MCP, of course. So to be eligible, you must provide a receipt indicating that an age-related driver's medical examination was provided and paid for on or after April 1st of this year. Examinations not related to age and all other examinations prior to April 1, 2023 are not going to be covered. But for drivers out there 75 and older that needed that medical, we can take it on and you're going to get reimbursed and or your doctor is going to be able to bill MCP directly. Good news. Very quick question. At Newfoundland Power, they've upgraded their software, and consequently, if it's not all of us, it's most of us, how now have a new account number. We'll see if we can figure out through Newfoundland Power, and I know a couple of particular employees at Newfoundland Power who listen to the program all the time. Does this have any impact that any of us need to be aware of? Whether it be because we have direct withdrawal from our bank account to cover our power bills, or are there any moving parts where my new account number may pose some concern or question that I need to address or rectify sooner than later? Because their account numbers, including the few people I spoke with yesterday, their account numbers have absolutely changed. So that's one thing. Uh, I wanted to get into a couple of issues on the federal front. There's an interesting story out there today, and this one's been kicking around forever. And it's just how disgraceful and deplorable and unlivable the conditions are at the home of the Prime Minister, which was once 24 Sussex Drive. So it was built back in the late 1800s. It was made a residence for the Prime Minister in 1950. And you can't live in it. Prime Minister Trudeau has never lived in it. Lives in Rideau Cottage. You know, we made the political issue the big part of this conversation, when in fact, it's government's going to change hands. So it's not about giving Trudeau a comfy lifestyle or Mr. Poliev or Mr. Singer, whoever, because hopefully if we do it right, whether build on a different site or tear it down and rebuild at 24 Sussex, because the estimated repair bill is over $36 million. You know, governments, and people talk about pride in country and being able to be proud when we receive dignitaries and other uh, state leaders here in the country, and we can't do it. We've been renting hotel rooms and stuff. So logistical concerns, security concerns. It seems to me it's in every party's best interest to not only do the renovations like they are on Parliament Hill, but to ensure that there's an actual residence for the prime minister. You know, doesn't that sound about right? 
Because regardless of which party is in power, this is going to be something for decades to come, which will be the hub of all these important state visits. So, and they're only talking about rebuilding something in the neighborhood of 15,000 square feet, which is not ginormous. The White House is 56,000 square feet. Uh, 10 Downing, the, of course, residence for the prime minister in the UK, 71,400 square feet. So we're still talking pretty modest on the big scale or the grand scheme of things. But what do you think? Time to do something pragmatically with that or anything else under the sun we can tackle right after the break. We're on Twitter or VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Email address is openline at VOCM.com. When we come back, let's have a great show. Right off the bat, we're going to talk about the cod, summer cod fishery. There was recommendations coming from the ground fish industry to expand the total allowable catch that's been rebuffed by DFO for a couple of reasons. James Baird is the chair of the NL Ground Fish Industry Development Council. We'll start with him and then we'll speak with you. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's begin on line number three. Let's take a moment to the chair of the NL Ground Fish Industry Development Council. That's James Baird. Good morning, James. You're on the air. Uh, good morning, Patty. How are you today? That's kind, sir. How about you? Not so bad. Uh, Patty, I know we're, you mentioned we're talking about the cod fishery today, in, uh, and you mentioned 3KL. Actually, the, the cod fishery, just for a little background, is two, the fishery occurs in 2J, 3K, and 3L off the coast of Labrador and the northeast coast and the east coast of Newfoundland. But it's divided up into three different allocations. There's a 2J allocation, there's a summer allocation for 3KL, and a fall allocation for 3KL. So what I'm talking about today is the summer allocation for 3KL. Now, that fishery was opened up on July 23rd and was scheduled to close on September 9th. And DFO closed it last Sunday, August 26th. Now, under surface, that's a good news story because it meant that the catch rates were good, the quality was good, the condition of the fish was good, all in all pretty good. The concern that we have, and others as well, is that this is probably a missed opportunity in 2023. Like the fishing industry this year particularly needed a bit of need a bit of help, but still needs a bit of help. And DFO received requests earlier in the year for a modest increase in the allowable harvest for the stock. Right? It was submitted by the Ground Fish Council. It was supported by the FFAW. Processor supported it. The Association of Seafood Producers put their support behind that kind of a proposal. The province of Newfoundland supported it. Newfoundland MPs supported it. You had Clifford Small on talking about it earlier in the year, and other MPs as well, probably. Uh, See Newfoundland supported, everybody supported an increase, and the minister decided no, no increase. And there's been no increase because there's been no scientific assessment for two years. This is right. the bad part. This is the evil twist. Before we get into the, the vessels and the lack of uh, scientific research, what is the quota if we just talk 3KL, and what was the proposal proposed increase? Well, the, the overall quota for 2J3KL was 12,999, and our proposal was 17,000 tons, okay. 4,000 tons. The share of that for 3KL summer fishery is about 60%. It's 20% for 2J, 20% for the fall fishery, and 60% for for uh, 3KL summer fishery. So, so that, that's what closed last. That that 60% is what closed on Sunday. So people had great catch rates, had a good year so far, but that could have been a little bit better. Now, you know, we've talked about this before. I talked about it on your show as well. That. We haven't had a scientific assessment for this stock now in 2021 or 2022 or 2023. No new signs. And the reason for that is that there's been, the vessels haven't been operation, operational. Uh, in 2022, in 2021, they went out and did part of a survey, couldn't finish it all because of vessel problems. In 2023, in 2022 rather, DFO felt it was better to do some comparative fishing analysis, which is important too. 
and the survey didn't get done for a second year. So no assessment for two years. So we, the, the Groundfish Council and others felt that with the, with the success of the fishery in 2022, and people uh, all did well last year as well in the cod fishery, and it closed earlier for the summer fishery again in 2022, might be an opportune year to get a little increase in the quota and help people out a little bit. And the minutes to refuse that. Right. With the lack of science makes it a tricky piece of business, I would suggest. So when we talk about actual science and anecdotal science, what they see on the water, which is obviously important. I mean, the catch rates and the quality and the size of the fish has to be somehow incorporated. But when it feels like DFO is moving forward on a variety of species with the precautionary approach, the precautionary principle, were you even surprised? Because from where I sit, and I don't have a stake in the, in the, in the industry, when we feel that precautionary approach being taken without any science, then it makes for possibly an easier decision not to bump up the tech. Yeah, uh, the Groundfish Council and most of the industry players in Newfoundland support precautionary approach. And actually, there is a 2J3KL card rebuilding plan in place. DFO are doing it now, and most of the industry players are going to participate in that process. But that requires an assessment. Mm-hmm. It requires it, it, the, the, to trigger a, a quota change requires an, a stock assessment. So if you don't do an assessment for two or three years, there's no change in two or three years, regardless of what the stock does. So all that we did, we used anecdotal, you call it anecdotal information, but it's not just anecdotal information, it's numerical information. It comes from the fishing activity uh, at the time. So in 2022, fishing success was fabulous. It was the, one of the best catch rates in the cod fishery since we started this, this uh, uh, stewardship type fishery in the mid 2010s way above anything we've seen in the past five or six or seven or eight years. And it, and it repeated again this year. So we use that information to say, Minister, look, catch rates are good. The fishing mortality for this stock is extremely low. And now is the time to have a small increase. It will still result in extremely low fishing mortality, still address the precautionary approach, and still allow the stock to grow. And that was refused by the minister. And I didn't use anecdotal as a, a dismissive term, just as no, no, a... I know you didn't. I know you didn't. Okay, let's talk about another couple of things there, because, you know, the price per pound is pretty low when we talk about raw material. If you look and compare across different industries, the value of the raw material versus what is down the line by the time I buy it off a grocery shelf. So in the world of grading... You know, it's a very convenient place to be when the product might not even be graded until it makes it to the plant. The folks grading it are opposed to writing the check to the harvester. It seems to be a bit of a broken model on that front. What concerns do you have about how they grade it from A to C? No, boy. Like in 20, we've had some issues with grading in the past. But in the past few years, grading has been improved quite a bit. Okay. Like I've called some major plant operators this year and said, how was your quality so far this year? And the most reports I got is that the grade A quality card, that's the top quality card, runs around 85 to 95% of the total catch. And that's pretty good. You know, like one time we had, that was down around 50, 60, 70%, you know? So in the grade A quality, and this is, and so fishermen are satisfied with that. You get that report from the fish plants. Well, fish harvesters are, would support that. And they know when their quality, when fishermen know when their quality is good. So while well, there was an issue a few years ago, uh, we, we, the Groundfish Council and others paid attention to quality. Uh, the Fishermen's Union had a quality project for a few years to try to convince fishermen or to inform fishermen about how to produce better quality fish. And that seemed to have paid off. And uh, 
and we're seeing the results of that in the plants today. Yeah, not leaving the nets in the water too long, slushing it quick uh, has resulted in a lot more grey day, and there's a big difference, like a dollar a pound right. down to 20 cents a pound, so yeah. that's a, a, an extraordinary difference. One other complicating factor this year, James, is with the six-week tie-up in the snow crab industry, we've got cod harvesters out there telling us they can't find anywhere to sell their fish. Yeah, absolutely, and you know something, the fishery this year was slower starting than the fishery last year. Of course, didn't have the, the, the crab tie up last year. The fishery started at about the same time, and in four, three and a half weeks, the summer quota was taken. This year, it took about five weeks because the first two weeks, a number of plants were still tied up with snow crab. They were doing other things too. Some, some were doing turbot, some were doing capelin, but the, the, the snow crab tie up was a big problem, and it slowed things down for the first couple of weeks. But after, you know, to about week three, most plants were doing some cod. So while it was, in, was, it was a concern early, it, it, uh, it's a concern that uh, sort of uh, eased off uh, into week three or week four of the fishery. And we're told that there's somewhere in the neighborhood of 20 or 96% of the snow crab allotment has been landed. So it looks like whatever concerns people had with their cod. But there was a couple of strange stories came in the door on that one too. You know, this one gentleman said that he was told by the plant that he has been selling to for years that because he doesn't have a crab license with them, then they're not even going to buy his cod off him. And then there was issues about getting ice, whether you're willing to pay for it or not. So to me, that's not necessarily all just a cod conversation. That's just the need to get this price setting panel figured out, specifically with the very valuable products like snow crab, like shrimp, because that's been the backbone since the cod and other ground fish kind of went by the wayside in some form or fashion. So unless we get it right on the crab, we're always going to be fighting upstream on the cod. Uh, I think you're right about that, and, and there's no question, well, I think the Minister of Fisheries provincially has indicated that there's going to be some change to the price setting. Uh, Pounder had agreed to have, have a look at it in any case, but we'll have to wait to see what happens over the fall and into the spring, I suppose, on that. Last one. Do we have any idea what the status of the science work looks like uh, next year? Because there's been the difficulty in getting parts, and there's been ships in dry dock for extended amount of time. Do we have any update that they will be available and back full swing with the science? We have early indications from scientists that the surveys are on track for 2023 in the fall. But we have meetings with science and the fisheries managers in September. And it's our position to bring that up again to get some confirmation that things are going to happen the way they should happen in 2023 to lead into 2024. Yeah, because we can't lean on science if we don't have the science. Uh, James, good to have you on. Anything else you'd like to add? No, but Patty, that's it for today. Thanks very much for having me. Appreciate your time. Take care. Okay. Okay, Goodbye. James Berry is the chair of the NL Groundfish Industry Development Council. Let's take a break. When we come back, we're talking about some shoddy roofing work. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Good morning, Dominic. You're on the air. Yes, good morning, Patty. Morning. To you and to all your listeners. The same to you. I'm Welcome to the show. I'm a first-time caller, Terrific. a long-time listener. I love that. Now, I don't know where to start it, but three years ago, I had my roof shingled. And ever since then, I'm just having problems after problems. It's just steady leaking. And the contractor comes back and does a little bit of work, but it still leaks. Now, when he when he done the roof first, there was a vent there. And he took it out. He never even covered the hole up. He just put the shingles over the vent. Now imagine how I had to walk down to that. 
And then that was only in August. And that September, we had a, a, a lot of rain. So I said, I better get up in that and see what's going on. And the water was just pouring in. And when I got up on the roof the next day, one of the shingles was on backwards. So he came back and fixed all that. Then he said the chimney's leaking. Then I went and put a, a tap on the chimney, and it's still leaking. So I'd just give you a call and see if you can help me out, or your listeners. So let me get this straight. So he initially put the shingles on directly over a vent without actually covering up the vent hole? That's right. That's right. And so that's where the bulk of the water was coming in, I assume? No, no. no it's leaking around the fireplace. Leaking around the fireplace. So when you put a cap on the fi- on the chimney, it was coming in where? So where the chimney butts into the roof itself? Well, see, what he done, he took off all the flashing off of the chimney when he was doing the roofing. Yeah. Which he shouldn't have done. No. And then he put back a big old piece of tin. So when he came up and he put gum on it and this and that, and he finally came up with new shingles on there and took the old piece of metal out of it. And it's still leaking. Now, I'm a, I'm a senior citizen, almost 83 years old. I can't be getting up and down that attic three or four times a day. Now, I've been up on the roof where I had to crawl around. It was ice there and snow, trying to, to find a leak. And when I finish you talking today, I got to get up on the roof again with more tar and put some more on there. So I don't know if you can help me or your listeners. Where are you? Carboneer. Carboneer. All right. So one thing uh, right off the bat, Dominic, I'm pleasantly surprised that anybody that's a roofing contractor even came back to attempt to fix it because there's an awful lot of fly-by-night stuff going on out there. Yeah. Now, I had one contractor come in to give me a price on it, and he looked at it. He wouldn't touch it unless he said, uh, I'll do it if you do the whole roof. But he wouldn't touch that. Yeah. So let me think. I, I do know some contractors in the area. I don't know what their schedule looks like or whether or not they want to take on someone else's uh, shoddy work. But if you're listening and you're in and around that neck of the woods and you think you'd like to lend Dominic Hand or at least drop over and see what you might be able to do without taking on the entirety of the re-roofing, then we can do that much for you. If anyone contacts me directly, which very likely they will, whether or not for info or something that you could or should do, I'll give you a call back. All right, thank you very much, Patty. You're welcome, Dominic. All the best. Have a good day. You too, sir. Bye-bye. I mean, in the roofing world, every year, every summer, I can come home and I'll see a business card sticking out of the, uh, the mailbox. And it's two things. It's either to get my driveway sealed or to get someone to do my roof. Now, I just had the roof done a few years ago. And you just got to be so careful, right? You know, especially when someone says they need a deposit. Boys, oh boys, how many stories do we have to hear where folks have made a deposit and lo and behold, they can't find the contractor again, right? They have run a game on you and they're gone. Secondly, is it's hard to know how to deal with something where you don't have a big, reputable company with years or decades of service here and word of mouth and recommendations coming from people you know. It's how do you ensure that the work is A, done properly, and B, they'll live up to whatever warranty is in place. Because the shingles themselves will come with some form of warranty. But how do you make sure that the contractor, and in some cases the jobber, will actually follow through and make sure that the roofing work done keeps the house dry? 
So, any advice for Dominic that you'd like to bring forward? You'll know what to do. Before we go, oh, let's keep going here. Let's go to line number two. Good morning, Susan Guiney. You're on the air. Hi, Patty. Hi there. How are you? It's going to be better this morning. How are you doing? Good. Um, I'm in Alberta, actually, calling you, so it's like a little after six here in the, in the morning. Welcome to the show. I did exchange emails with Bill about the next adventure. Tell us what's happening. Well, uh, he's actually, it's, it's been posted that he was leaving on Thursday, but it's, it's going to be delayed uh, because of the weather. So he's going to start his uh, trek from Signal Hill right up around Salmon Airline down the southern shore out to Signal Hill again, and he'll be starting that on Friday. Um, and he's um, going to be pushing his shoulder, Patty, <laughs> and he wants people to know if you see a man on the southern, on the Trans-Canada Highway pushing a stroller, there's, there's no baby in it. It's just a way of carrying his equipment with him all the supplies and everything that he's going to need. And it's actually going to be the title of his upcoming book called Push, Stories About Mental Health, all in an effort to raise more money. And he's raised a lot of money. You and Bill have raised a lot of money. And he's famous for taking on these long walks and incorporating the push-ups every so far. Uh, it has been pretty extraordinary stuff, I have to say. So inside the book, uh, there's going to be a split up, a third going to different areas. You know, well, it's, he's got to cover some expenses, but then there's going to be some money going to the Ruah Counseling Group, which is a good thing. Then there's going to be some of the proceeds going back to the gathering place. So forever sharing the wealth. Yeah, exactly. And we want to send a big thank you out to Arthur James and Mount Pearl. They again have supplied um, an outfit for him, sneakers and uh, different um, clothing that he will will help him along his way. Uh, they've been a great supporters of us for the past few years. So a big shout out to Arthur James. And um, um, I'm trying to think here now what else I can say. You pretty well said it all. Uh, third of the four seat goes to the gathering place. Uh, third goes to Rua. And a third for the expense of the books. And um, he just he's going to be gathering stories. So there's going to be a lot of people joining him on his walk as he goes through different communities and everything. So we're going to... Uh, He's hopefully going to be walking up Signal Hill September the 7th. And we're also going to be joining uh, the Edge of Avalon for an event on um, Sunday. Uh, so that'll be great to actually sit and relax and talk with friends. And then he's going to continue on to his journey to Signal Hill. And that particular edge of Avalon, that hotel is out in Trapassi, for folks who don't yeah. know. So the full loop is about 300 kilometers, hope to make, make his way back to Signal Hill on the 7th. So uh, good luck to Bill. Have a safe trek once again. And if you want to continue to share stories, whether it be with mental health and the impact that the Guyanese story or anybody else in that envelope would like to be part of the upcoming book called Push, just get in touch with us. We can send along some email address and contact information for yourself and for Bill. Thank you, Patty. You've been a great supporter for us for the past few years, too, or always. <laughs> Happy so. to do it. Say hello to Bill for me when you get a chance. And how's Alberta? What are you doing out there? 
I'm visiting my daughter. She had surgery. So uh, after our surgeries, I, I don't know if you're aware, Bill had two surgeries. So yeah. it's great that he's able to do this walk this year. And uh, I'm visiting our daughter. She had surgery. So I'll be heading home tomorrow. No, yes, tomorrow. So I'll be home for his walk. So she's on the mend then, I assume. Yes, she's on the mend. She's doing really well. We're, we're all doing really well after all of our surgeries, so it's great. I'm glad to hear it. Very quickly, what part of Alberta are you in? Oh, Alberta. It's uh, in between Red Deer and Calgary, and now outside of Calgary. So okay. it's a nice little town, and I love coming here every year. Well, enjoy the rest of your trip. Safe travel. Stay in touch, and good luck, Susan. Thank you so much, Patty. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Take care. All right, bye-bye. Uh, let's take a break. When we come back, Ken's in the queue. wants to respond to what we heard from James Baird, of course, the chair at the Groundfish Industry Development Council, and then lots of time for you. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number five. Ken, you're on the air. Yeah, good morning, Patty. How are you? That's kind. How are you doing? I'm not too bad. I just heard uh, Mr. Baird on there talking about the cod stocks that are good enough that they should get more quota and all this stuff. Mm-hmm. And the science. Yeah, well, okay, sure, it's neat science, too. <clears throat> but uh, to get more quota, and I also heard Jason Sullivan on the other day, too, talking about they're hoping to cash in on the redfish in the Gulf and a lot more quota from Black Tickle to Renews, whatever you talk about. And there is, I, what I've seen myself, anyway, a lot of cod this summer. But what are they going to do with more quota? We can't get clear of what we got this summer. Do they Have they got a plan for that? Well, that's why I asked them about the fact that some of the plants were not buying the cod because they're all trying to catch up with the crab. But I suppose, given the fact that certainly by the end of this week, every pound of crab in the in the ta- in the tack is going to be landed. So I suppose there will be would have been a spot to land some of the cod, but that would have required DFO to extend the season as opposed to the fact that it's already closed. Yeah, well, I mean, if I had more quarter this year, if I had a thousand tons. <laughs> What would I do with that? I can't get clear of the 16,000 pounds that I was allowed to catch. I still got 5,000 pounds in the water. I was lucky to get what I did get. And, and then I see some of the, the harvesters out there trying to find different ways to sell their cod, whether it be direct to restaurants or individuals or side of the highway or whatever they were doing, because it must be extremely frustrating through no fault of their own. And a snarl in the, co- in the crab fishery has led to the inability to sell their cod when there's so very little of it to begin with anyway. Well, they're using the crab there. <coughs> excuse me. They're using the crab there for an excuse. But this was went on last year too. There was no tie-up, six-week tie-up last year. It was the same thing. You're on a trip limit and a day limit. You still never caught the quota last year, either. How much did you leave in the water last year? Well, I don't know right off a hand now, but okay. I know that I certainly never caught the quota. Okay. But I know this right now, this summer fishery that closed Sunday, I got five thousand pounds left in the water. I don't know what the, who to blame that on. I mean, well, the buyer I had was said never to finish with me. He wasn't buying no more, and I couldn't get no ice. I'm the one, I guess you were talking about there. And that's still ongoing. The union is trying to look after that for me. But only for the good friends I got, they give me some ice from their own, sneaked it to me from their company. <laughs> I was able to go out and get some fish and sell it locally. I did come across a buyer on the end of it there, but it was too too late to, you know, it was too late for that day in the last two weeks. I'm so... But that's it. I'm just saying there that Jason Spingle and Mr. Beard there, I hope you do get more quota, but I hope that they got a way to get clear of it too. There's no good to have it on your paper, and yeah. you can't get it out of your boat. Yeah, 100%. So what you left in the water is worth, what, $4,000 minus expenses, something like that? Well, if you got top price for it now, it was a dollar a pound, I think. The, the 
if you got what I got for it, it was only 74 cents a pound. So Okay. Yeah, so if he, Mr. Baird said 80% of the landed 3KL cod was graded at A, so if you've got 80% of your 5,000, 4,000 minus expenses, you're still down $3,000 minimum. Yes, or more. Or more. And also, I've seen Jason Spingle on there in front of a crowd of people in, in their office, I guess it was. Is on the VOCM news. I Snapchat to, or Snapchat the picture. Is there? Uh, there needs to be a way to pro- uh, needs to be a way to process the cod. Jumping down, the first cod was landed here 526 years ago, and they're still wondering how to process it. You know that don't make sense to me. No, I, and it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me either. But I suppose there's way fewer plants. And consequently, with the cod and so little of it, even some of the multi-species plants, they are much more akin to want to gear up for crab or shrimp or something, anything other than cod or any other ground fish species, because that's where the money was. Yeah, well, uh, fellers are investing in cod, like buying them insulated tubs, trying to get better quality and everything, and I'm one of them. Yep. I got worse quality this year on paper than I did last year. And uh, if they don't want to buy the card, just why don't they just come out and say, listen, we're going to close the card down and we'll buy you out, because I'm ready to sell it all anyway. What's the point of me putting in money and uh, going, going backwards instead of going forward? You know, it's crazy. This is absolute crazy, this racket business. Uh, yeah, I know the crab fishery is very important. I know it is. But uh, the crab fish was the fishery here one time, and it should still be now, too. There's lots of cod, and there's lots of market for it. Fairways and Norwegians and Icelandic. You sell cod as much as they can handle it, more if they can get it. And here, they can't even uh, buy a, a fellow's quarter, 3,200 3, pounds a week. Is that unreal? Unreal. Yeah, and I mean, it doesn't feel like anything someone wants to go at for, the, for fun or for the good of their health because it's dangerous, it's difficult, and if you can't make a good go of it and leave in quota in the water, it's got to be infuriating. You talk about the market. Now, whether it's a white tablecloth in New York City or I always think back to the walking in a grocery store in uh, St. Petersburg, Florida, and salt cod was eighteen ninety nine a pound, and that summer the harvesters were getting 50 cents. Yeah. Remarkable. That's the same today, too. Yeah, oh, yeah, no doubt. Same today. I appreciate the time. Anything else this morning, Ken? Uh, well, I I contacted the, the federal government. I was talking to Ken McDonald himself, and I told him I would be interested in have, trying to form some meetings around here after November when this is over, because, like I said, no good for a crowd of fishermen to come in the hall now and try to have a civilized meeting because they're too frustrated. There'd be nothing on a riot anyway. So I said, maybe after this is over in November, you need to come down here and start uh, have some meetings, listen to the fishermen's concerns and the trouble and the stuff they had to go through this year. And also talked to Elvis Lovett's office yesterday about another matter, but I did bring that up too. I said, a lot of this stuff is provincial, so you should be involved with it too. Just listen to the fishermen, and the fishermen only, not plant workers, not the union, because they'll only sway it around and they'll all go in their favor anyway. That's what I requested. So I don't know if they're going to do anything. If any other fisherman is out there listening that in the same predicament, maybe they should voice uh, their opinion too because I'm sure there's lots of fishermen in the same predicament as I am because I can hear them down on the wharf talking, but I don't hear them anywhere else. And I told them, you can talk all you like here on the wharf and no one's going to hear you here. Only only all of us that already knows what you're talking about. So <clears throat> that's all I got to say there this morning. I hope he gets more quota, but I certainly hope that he can find some way to get clear of it. You can't have one without the other. 
Appreciate the time, Ken. Thanks for the call. Thank you, Barry. You're welcome, Bye. sir. Bye-bye. Right, let's keep rolling here. Before we get to the news, let's go to line number three and say good morning to the program lead at the CNIB. That's Kelly Pickow. Good morning, Kelly. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Um, I'm calling this morning um, to talk about volunteering with CNIB. At CNIB, we are recruiting volunteers for a variety of different roles. In particular, the Vision Mate program is looking for volunteers and the Tech Mate program is looking for volunteers. So training will be provided by CNIB for all of our roles, but especially for these roles. And um, there will be a short interview conducted and uh, just, uh, just a chat about some of your interests and hobbies, just so we can match you with the best person for these roles. And so these, these matches have a chance to last for a good period of time. Um, for the Vision Mate program, we have had matches in the past that have lasted for up to 13 years. So for a match to last that long, it's a pretty good match. Um, so at CNIB, we like to express our appreciation and extend gratitude to all of our volunteers for all of the hard work that they do for us, whether it's for half an hour once a year or whether it's for two hours every week for a year. Everyone is helping out CNIB and clients involved. It's uh, it's a great it's a great opportunity to gain some experience and to learn about working with people who have vision loss. And like I said, the uh, training will be provided specifically to the role that you will be volunteering in. And what are some of those roles? Give us an idea, Kelly. So the Vision Mate program and the Tech Mate program, as I mentioned, um, we offer a uh, newsletter. So, you know, if a volunteer is interested in writing, they could write some stories for us uh, in our newsletter. Um, we offer several virtual programs. So if the volunteer would like to give a presentation on a virtual program or do a short performance on a virtual program, or even if they would like to help out with some of the Zoom controls on these virtual programs, such as making sure all participants are muted or letting me know uh, if any participants has their hand raised, things like that. There's complex volunteer roles and there's very simple volunteer roles. And I will indeed be able to sign off on these volunteer roles if high school students are looking for hours or if graduate students are looking for hours when they are applying to um, other programs. Uh, that's, that's perfectly fine. I can take care of that and sign it off. So I, I would like people to reach out to me directly if they are interested or they can fill out a volunteer interest form on cnib.ca um, or they can email me at kelly.pico at cnib.ca. 
Good luck with it. You're always welcome to come on and make a plea for more volunteers. Uh, anything else quick before I go to the news, Kelly? No, thank you very much. Good to have you on. Take care. Thanks. Scotty Pico, CNIB program lead. Break for the news. When we come back, the housing issue facing people of the province. Uh, going to Change Islands for a story about the fishery, and then we're going to talk about drugs for one particular ailment, and in this case, I think it's myeloma. Don't go away. Every Saturday is perfect for a night at the cabin. The Cabin Party with Brian O'Connell. Saturday night starting at 7 p.m. on VOCM. And welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number six. Good morning, Lisa. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Very well, thanks. How about you? I'm doing good, Patty. Good. Patty, um, I took the opportunity last night to uh, watch the NTV News and, and uh, listen to um, a couple of members of the uh, opposition parties talking about uh, the ho- ho- housing crisis in the province. Mm-hmm. Um, as you, you're well aware, Grace Park's house is a shelter uh, for uh, women and children who are experiencing abuse in um, in the Bjorn Peninsula region, uh, but we also offer uh, supportive, um, affordable housing, which, you know, money we receive through the HPS initiative, which is the Homelessness Partnering Strategy Initiative, um, back in 2013, 2014, and since then, of course, we've, you know, we have six units, and they have been, you know, we've been at 100% occupancy uh, since we opened, and we could probably have 10 more buildings and still be, um, you know, in, in you know in, in desperate need for more housing. Um, along with that, we're also the proponent for the housing support worker uh, for our region. So for those that may not know what the housing support workers are, um, they are funded through SLP, the Supportive Living Program through Newfoundland Labrador Housing, and their main role is to help those uh, who have difficulty finding housing. So um, I look at it from two different perspectives, of course, from, you know, a victim's violence uh, lens, but I also look at it from those who are, uh, you know, struggling to find housing, those who, um, you know, have various obstacles in finding housing. And, you know, one of the comments made uh, by uh, one of the opposition leaders last night was, you know, that it was it was important, I suppose, uh, you know, that we look at community-based housing. And that's, and that's fine, and that's, you know, that's well understood because, you know, we're able to do a little bit more and, and uh, I guess, be a little bit more lenient in terms of things that happen and things that go on than, you know, people generally are in the, you know, the private sector or for profit. But in order to, to look at community organizations, especially in rural Newfoundland, uh, we don't have the supports to help us do that housing. As much as we want to do that, we don't have the supports. So we have myself, like in our organization, we have myself and our housing support worker, uh, who is Joan Brown, and she's well known not only in this region, but I'm sure within the province. She's uh, been with us now for about 13 years since uh, many organizations across the province advocated for supportive, um, for housing support workers to help those, uh, you know, that uh, were uh, hard hard to house. And a lot of that comes from whether it would be past experiences uh, with not paying rent, whether it would be with addictions, whether it would be with damages, whether it would be with not paying rent. There's various reasons why people are hard to house. And, you know, for us, 
uh, we're two people and we're trying to struggle through the systems and the systems are not working. You know, the current setup right now, when I look at when I started this 23 years ago, and I've been, you know, in, in the community sector for over 32 years, but in this particular area for 23 years, it's it's gotten worse. And I think that it's time that, you know, it, it's not just the government that's in now. It's not past governments. and not looking to lay blame uh, on any particular uh, party. But I think it's time that they start listening to people in, uh, in the community who are dealing with it and, uh, and, and those who are trying to find housings and, and, and what those obstacles are because it just seems to fall on deaf ears day after day. And, you know, we, we like currently right now, we have a person in one of our units who hasn't paid us rent since December, but, but we're not making her homeless. But but where do we find the money to pay $8,000 a month in rent? Where do we pay the money to pay water and sewer taxes to a municipality? Where do we pay the money to pay taxes, property taxes to a municipality? When, you know, when you're struggling with trying to keep people housed, not only with regards to their mental wellness or an addiction or abuse or, or, or a reputation or just coming out of jail, whatever it might be, we don't have the resources to do community-based housing, not-for-profit housing, unless people start listening to what the issues are. And personally, what I see uh, as, as, you know, as a start in the right direction is that we don't need to be offloading everything on Newfoundland Labrador housing. I think there needs to be a direct department within government that deals with housing solely, not not rentals, not anything like that, just the issues that are, are arising with regards to what the challenges are. The we have private landlords that we have to sign contracts with to have people housed, and then we're on we're on the, on the hook then for whatever damages there may be. I mean, there's people with addictions who who tear out gyprock in walls to get copper piping to to purchase, you know, uh, drugs. There's 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 now you know from what we're hearing there's there's a, a black market with food banks for people who are going to the food bank getting you know um getting food and then selling it to purchase drugs there's there's so many different there's there's such a, a, a you know a web of it it's not just about the addiction it's not just about the mental health it's not just about saying you know you need to have a roof over your head for all these things to work we need a direct department that's going to meet people where they are and listen to these housing support workers across the province and listen to the people who are challenged with housing and make and, and, and then form solutions. We don't need committees, we don't need research, we don't need any of that stuff. It already exists. Our housing support workers send in reports on a quarterly basis to Newfoundland Labrador Housing and in the past 13 years out of those reports, the only thing that has changed to the best of my knowledge is that now Newfoundland Labrador Housing uh, can request like an option C for like for you know for people to go into uh, Newfoundland Labrador Housing Unit. Mm -hmm. 
there's a lot to what you just uh, said there. So in housing, we really do need an updated number about how many units are vacant, currently waiting for repairs, or maybe not going to be in, uh, not going to be habitable in the future. That's one thing. Uh, a standalone department. I mean, I totally get that idea, but even as a beginning or a jumping-off point, we've got all levels of government kind of th- accepting their role in housing, whether it be for uh, homeless people and or affordable units. Period. The federal government, over the course of 30 years, kind of walked away from their responsibility regarding social housing, mm-hmm. and now we find ourselves with the need to build 5.8 million homes, including of X percentage of rentals, by 2030. It's it doesn't even seem humanly possible, to be honest with you. We don't even have the people to build them, let alone no. possibly the capacity. But in the world of emergency homes, emergency shelters, a great example that people could and should be pointing to was that we're clearing out hotel rooms in Gander for the tourist season, shuffling people around. They end up in a very small community in Carmenville. They don't have any of the supports. They've got a roof over their head, possibly to get some clothing, but no mental health supports, no counseling, no treatment, an empty RCMP detachment. So... Moving people around is nowhere near the solution here. No, no. With a standalone ministerial portfolio, for starters, some of the people that would be helpful as bureaucrats under that minister would come from a variety of departments. So even if we just had a formalized working group that did uh, focus on housing and nothing else, representatives that are knowledgeable from justice, health and community safety, uh, health, uh, pardon me, public safety and justice, uh, health community services, children, seniors and social development, uh, Department of Education, the Department of Municipal Affairs. If we start with that working group and they just take the next six months or whatever time frame people think is appropriate or adequate and do nothing but focus on housing. Now, that said, there's only so much that one level of government can do. A lot of this falls back to the municipalities to try to avail of some of the, you know, so there's $82 billion over 10 years in the national housing strategy. The problem is, if we're going to put the shoulder of the burden on the province for the municipalities, municipalities get about 10 cents per every tax dollar that flows to the federal government. This is a federal government issue that needs federal government guidance. They cannot say it's not technically our jurisdiction because any monies, any government and the ability to borrow, I know we've taken on a whopping big sovereign debt load, but the housing issue is creating a societal issue. It's creating a criminal justice issue. It's creating a health community services issue. Absolutely. So unless they all think that inside this working group that I just dreamt up would be the Minister of Rural Economic Development, Goody Hutchings. It would be her staff. It would be federal representatives from Sean Fraser's staff, who are his, the now federal Minister of Housing. Just got to bring people together to figure this out, because the needs here are different than they are in, say, Ontario, Quebec, and B.C. And whether you know international students, 80% of the international students, of which there was 800,000 last year, 80% are in those three provinces. So their needs look differently, different than ours. So if we don't start with that formalized group, I mean, we've got a formalized group of 10 with a $1 million budget to talk about law enforcement and civilian oversight and those types of things. That's important. But where does it stack up to the issues regarding housing? I would say somewhere below it, because if you get housing right, you deal with some of those matters. Yes, absolutely. And, and, and the supports need to come along with that, right? Again, we need to meet people where they are, not where we think they need to be. And, and you know, the private sector now, the for-profit, um, the experiences that they've, you know, had over the past, you know, five, ten years, that's why they're not renting to people who, who require supports. And we don't have the resources to give those supports. And, you know, when we go back to talking about the levels of government that are responsible, everybody plays a part. Like our, our Municipalities Act right now, that legislation needs to change. Mm-hmm. It doesn't support us. It doesn't support community-based housing. 
you know and and like we you know just from my perspective alone and i'm sure that if there's other you know community organizations that provide housing like we don't have money for repairs we don't have money to to paint apartments if they need to be done we don't have money to replace alarm systems we don't have money to to have lawns mowed we don't have money for snow clearing like we have to uh ensure that you know we're keeping people housed and they're getting the supports they need so sometimes we can go months without receiving rent uh because we're not in the business to make people house uh, homeless but at the same time how how can we keep operating when there's so much red tape with within the different levels of government but also uh you know with 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 local landlords again and again you know whether it's we need more rental subsidies to get them out into private ones like we have to sign contracts with private uh, landlords to say if something happens we'll be responsible for the damages and yep. then we've got to go out and try and fundraise to get that money you know to keep that person happy the uh, i don't know it requires a tidal shift in thinking now the fact of the matter is housing is a huge contributor to the country's gdp we went from housing being about having a place to live to being part of the speculative investment market so how do you actually change the water on those beans because now as i mentioned the contribution into the country's gdp over the last 30 years where we went from building houses so people had a place to live to building houses as part of private equity. Look, the most valuable thing I'll ever buy, the most valuable piece of equity I will ever have is my home. So I understand where people are coming from. There's nothing wrong with being a landlord and landlords aren't the problem either. It's just that we've changed our whole view, the tone and tenor of housing in this country. It's almost insurmountable to turn it around, but you don't need to turn it around in full. You just got to deal with it and come up with a plan. There's no long-term modeling on housing in this country none and unless you have a starting point that you can measure against we're just going to be farting around and fooling around and chasing our tail and looking back and forth between the municipalities the province and the feds before long we would have absolutely run out of time because when people say it's a wartime crisis and a wartime type of reaction is required they're absolutely right I mean, they are. We can talk about housing and health care and all the rest of it. If you do not get it right in housing, then every other issue that you try to deal with, you'll be putting Band-Aid over Band-Aid over Band-Aid forever and a day. Absolutely. Uh, Lisa, final thoughts to you because I'm a little late for the break. Yep, uh, no problem. Um, you know, I guess just to you know to, to clear it all up and, and put it in some kind of perspective, you know, of, of what we're dealing with here, um, just in this area alone. I mean, we have a family that's been in a hotel since March. And it's being provided for by the province. So where where is that compared to a woman who right now has uh, an elderly woman who's receiving chemotherapy, sleeping on a mattress, looking after her grandchildren who were taken from their mother because of addictions? You know, like... It's no good to get on and say there's got to be a holistic approach. It's no good to get on and say it's got to be community. You know, we've got to have some not-for-profit. We've got to, and and also there's room for profit. We we just got to start. We've we've got to start now. It's it's getting worse. It's escalating, and you know, and and I beg all levels of government and all parties to just you know let let's do something and start listening to the support of housing workers in this province. They know what's happening. Appreciate the time, Lisa. Thank you. Thank you so much, Patty. Have a great day. You too. Take care. Bye. Bye bye. Let's take a break. When we come back, we're going to change islands and we're going to talk about myeloma drugs and whatever you want to talk about. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number, let's try number four. Alfie, you're on the air. 
morning, Betty. Good morning to you. Uh, yesterday, late in your program, uh, there was a woman on, and she was talking about either her father or stepfather who had multiple myeloma, blood cancer, and they couldn't get the drug he needed because it was too expensive. Well, I'm kind of in the same boat. Well, they, they, that particular story was they had cut him off from the chemo that he was receiving. They gave, him a, they gave him 20 months or 18 or 20 months worth of chemo, and that has come to, uh, to pass, and now that he's been cut off, which is interesting because he was never told there was any such thing associated with this treatment. Oh, I didn't know that. But yeah. uh, anyway, I, uh, three years ago, I was diagnosed, and they tried a couple of drugs. I was in remission until Christmas, and then the drugs stopped working. So I, I tried two different drugs since. It hasn't worked since December. Uh, but there's this new, apparently, wonder drug on the market is taking the place of the other ones for multiple myeloma. It's called isotuximab. And uh, the doctors lobbied the pharmacy, pharmaceutical company for it, uh, but it was denied because it was too expensive. Like, you know, it's, it's kind of hard to fathom. I'm 55 years old and I'm really active, uh, fishing and hunting and all that kind of stuff. And, uh, like, it's, it's hard to believe that this day and age, it, you, just, you can't get a drug to save your life because it's too expensive. Is that drug uh, on the market in Canada? Yes. Okay. I, I don't know. I'm not familiar with this, so I was just asking a base question there. So when we talk about cost, the treatments that the lady talked about yesterday was about $10,000 a month. What's the associated cost with this new wonder drug, as you call it? According to uh, what I'm after reading, it's actually around 30000 a month. Oh. So, like, I don't know why pharmaceutical companies aren't, like, regulators, like, only able to make so much money. It's, that's one thing. Another thing is, like, okay, Canadian Cancer Society, last year they took in $112 million. Like, why is it so out of reach for someone not to be able to afford a life-saving drug when all this money is being donated to cancer? I know they have to do research and stuff, but, I mean, they come on, I mean, $112 million. That would support a lot of uh, pharmaceuticals for sure. I don't, I don't know whether or not this is being looked at by the provincial pharmaceutical program as whether or not it could or would be con- included. You know, it's, I did a little bit of follow-up after I spoke with Crystal yesterday about her father's per- stepfather's predicament, and I mentioned a, a specific federal program, special appeasement or uh, something like that. And if the drug is not available in Canada, but is approved in countries like the United States, there's the possibility for the feds to cover it. Then I went and looked on uh, compassionate coverage coming from the pharmaceutical companies themselves. It turns out that when you hear that being discussed, it is few and far between. That is not a real go-to option for almost anybody for any drug. No, I, I, I kind of figured that, but anyway, the doctors, they, they did try to lobby it for me. Uh, but like, like I said, we can so much money being donated to cancer for the last 50 years. I mean, to deny someone a life-saving drug, it's it's, it's hard to believe from, from where I'm sitting. You have to understand the stress that I'm under. I mean, I'm, like I said, I'm 55 years old. I have two teenagers. One is just about to go to university. Another is in grade 12. I mean, I'd like to see what kind of marks they're going to make on the world, but you got to sit back and wait and see if somehow, some way, somebody is going to come up with this, okay, we're going to give you a drug to save your life. Yeah, you're my age. Uh, 
Alfie, are you a part of any of the support groups? And I don't mean just to get, you know, a, a shoulder to cry on. Sometimes there are strength in numbers. When we talk about one person, one doctor advocating for their patient, being the champion, that has certain amount of impact. But I do know there's a myeloma support group here in the province that if this is a common issue with this new wonder drug and what it means for people's quality of life and or to extend their life significantly, maybe there's some strength in numbers there that can make a difference. Uh, I get emails and stuff all the time. You comment, and we do that Kent uh, myeloma whack and stuff like that. Yep. There is lots. There is lots of support, but I mean, support is one thing. Being able to have your the drug to save you is another. So, what were you taking? Is it the thalidomide or? I, I can't really remember. I, I, this is my fifth drug now. The last two didn't work. Uh, but on, the, on another side, like I've reached out to government, I reached out to. Um, Premier, uh, our MP here, uh, Seamus, and never heard from either one of them. And I reached out to the health minister, and now and Lyola O'Driscoll was my MHA. He called the health minister for me, and they did get back to me last week and said they were looking into it. Didn't hear anything from them, so I'm hoping. Uh, but on the other side, like federal government, provincial government, I mean, there's money for everything else. I mean, there's money, hundreds of millions for foreign countries, for Bombardier, for oil companies. There's money for everything. Why isn't there money to keep people alive who are leading an active lifestyle? It's not like I'm sitting in palliative care waiting to die and they're going to waste their money on me. I mean, I'm an active person. I wonder if this gets attended to if and when one party or another holding the seat of government decides to move forward with the universal pharmacare. I mean, I get it. We've got the huge debt load, and someone's going to have to eventually pay it. I understand all of those things. But at some point, there's also got to be acknowledgement of every single report that's ever been done for the Senate or for the House of Commons regarding universal pharmacare, only country on the face of the earth with universal health care, with a population greater than 10 million, that does not have associated universal pharmacare. The price tag is huge, but the long-term benefit and the long-term savings is well-documented. The last report was uh, the head fell on that was Dr. Eric Hoskins. They were quite clear. When people don't get the drugs, they get sicker, they're in the hospital, they get sicker, they die. Tens, or pardon me, millions of Canadians today not refilling their prescriptions, taking half a dose. What does that mean? They get sicker. What does that happen after that? They go to the hospital. What's the most expensive thing to do in this country? Be in the hospital. So there is an argument, I think, for universal pharmacare. There's everybody is afraid of it because of the initial price tag, but afraid to dig down and look at what it means in the windows of five years, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years. I mean, to know that there's people that can't be helped that are simply going to die because we've got a price tag on it. And a good point you make about regulating the pharmaceutical industry, people think about the most powerful lobby groups that make their way to uh, Parliament Hill, and the the issue regarding the number of lobbyists and registered lobbyists and companies is way, way, way up. Pharmaceuticals are right near the top of the heap, and they are making off like bandits. Yeah, I agree. Alfie, uh, keep me in the loop. Stay in touch. I wish you well, and we'll see where this particular drug stands. I'll look it up because I can't remember exactly what it's called. Those, those drugs are unnecessarily complicated names. I'll see whether or not that's actually on the list for consideration for coverage under the province's Pharmaceutical Services Division. All right. Thanks for that, Patty. Take care of yourself, Alfie. All right. Bye-bye. Uh, Dave, what am I at here? Am I going to Larry? Yes, I'm going. To, you want me to take the break or go to Larry? I'll go to Larry. Let's see if we can hear a fish story. Not a tall tale. Line five. Larry, you're on the air. How you doing, Penny? Doing great. You? Oh, pretty good. Thank you for taking my call. Happy to do it. 
I uh, I just wanted to. You were talking to a, a fellow there a short while ago, a fisherman, I think, talking about how he only uh, landed ten thousand pounds quarter and left five thousand in the water. And, yeah. Um, I think I like to give what I consider some of the reasons for that. For one thing, we haven't got enough fish plants. They started the the, the government and the people in Newfoundland let those big companies come in and rule the roost, and that's what they're doing now. They're telling us what to do, when to do it, how to do it, and everything in the world. And I'll give you an example. Here on Change Islands, we uh, got the company here, Quincy, and we know who they're part of. And uh, right from the beginning, years ago, this community gave them a tax break because they wanted to help the situation on the employment side of it and blah, blah, blah. So on she went. So that was many years later. Where, and they, start, they came here in and they started up the cucumbers. This is where the whole idea began and uh, they gave, uh, the, we had a, a license for it here we also got a license to pro- process cod and so they, they're like they're on the winning end right from the beginning they took the cucumbers in when they finally got it all down pat and, and knew everything about it and uh, the workers here uh, that was at it some of them down there died and they got sick and all kinds of going on with it and uh, when they finally got everything all down pat, and the workers that were there were were, were able to do it uh, very, very, very fast, they took it away from them. And they haven't brought no cucumbers there since. They got it all set up over there where they're catching them to. So they they won that one. And the, the we got a, like I said, we got a processing license. So we're, we're bringing in our cod. Uh, I'm thankful that they are here uh, most of the time this season and, and trucked away our fish, but uh, that's not ideal when you're talking about uh, quality and all of that kind of stuff. So, you know, like, and, and they're not they're not uh, giving anything. I mean, they haven't even got. Uh, we're sitting there with uh, fishing three species for them: crab lobster and the cod and squid when it's available and this past year it's it was the uh all-time best lobster season uh i mean they carried away forty thousand plus pounds of lobsters from change Islands this year they carried away all of our crab and our cod and you can't even supply a hoist machine i mean in 2023 a fish plant without a hoist machine do that make sense no. <laughs> you know, so uh, th- this is where the problem lies. I mean, these people are ruling the roost. I mean, why why can't they uh, process a bit of cod here? We got, I mean, they've done it here I was in, uh, at this racket for over 40 years. And when I started here, we opened up the, the outside door to the fish plant, and fish were knee deep for in there across the plant, the buggery. And, and I mean, they processed it there and, and way to go. And now the doors have been barred and we got a processing license, which we're about to lose because we're not doing a certain amount of ground fish here. And uh, and they're just uh, on the winning end of it all, you know. But the good thing about it is we do get a bonus at the end of the year. And guess what that bonus is? 
a turkey. A turkey? Yep. Now, that's something, eh? We got no ice machine. We got, uh, like, no, they, they, they're not doing absolutely nothing here for us. And, uh, and the half a dozen or so employees they got down there, to me, it's only a mockery to them. They get, getting these few hours there now while they, they took this bit of crab and a few hours at the cot. And that's it, then they're just goodbye. So they're needed again next year for a few hours. And no one say that they can't get the workers. There's lots of people in uh, Newfoundland and in this country and in other countries that would love to have a job. So, you know, like, what, what's going on with it all? I mean, ooh, is this actually true? I mean, are they actually ruling the roost? Do they get to say everything? <laughs> I don't know if it's as simple as that, to be honest with you, Larry. I know that's the sentiment offered by many, is that the control, whether it be on the water or on the wharf, is in the hands of very few. There might be something to it, but I think some of that might be also somewhat exaggerated, to be honest with you. But, I mean, there's no denying that there was at one point between the uh, cod moratorium and before the shellfish became really valuable and backfilled what was once dominated by cod and other ground fish, the thought was that there was too many boats and too many plants. And consequently, there was fewer boats, fewer plants, and now that things are resurging somewhat and the value is increasing for some species, now we've got a problem selling it. So I guess, you know, during that window of time between 92 and probably the next decade where there was that concept that there's just too many people involved on, the, on land and on the water, and now we've got ourselves where it's difficult for during this season anyway. I don't know where the firm blame lies, but when you're unable to sell something that you've got a, a total allowable catch or an individual quota for, it's ridiculous. Uh, I'll give you the last word, Larry, before we have to go. Okay, thank you, Patty. Uh, I'd like to mention the, uh, the quota situation um, I, I like I don't know why it can't be done in this kind of a way like if it wouldn't matter to me if I had a 50,000 pound quota all the uh, the DFO got to do the coming year is to allow me to catch a certain percentage of that quota it would only be the same as what they're doing now right yep no, I think so. And there's a percentage of your catch you're allowed to sell in a non-traditional form as well. It doesn't have to be all of the processor, if I understand it correctly. Right. So therefore, sorry, therefore, that would give me, if I, if they gave me a larger quota, that would help my enterprise. That would make my enterprise more value. They did say in the beginning that 112,000 metric ton of it belonged to the insurer. So, so where is it? I mean, we can have it on paper. They can still only allow us to catch a certain percentage each year. Anyway, that's my take for today. Thank you. I appreciate the time, Larry. Stay in touch. Okay. Have a nice day. You too, sir. Bye-bye. All right, let's take a break. When we come back, Colin Corcoran's in the queue. He's the CEO at CSCNL. That's the Community Sector Council. Don't go away. Your voice in Newfoundland and Labrador's biggest conversation. If you want to know what's happening in your province, tune in to Open Line every day. Have your say weekday morning starting at 9 a.m. on Open Line with Patty Daly on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three. Say good morning to the CEO at the Community Sector Council. That's Colin Corcoran. Good morning, Colin. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you this morning? Very well, thanks for asking. How about you? I am fantastic, and as of yesterday's announcement, I have a lot of reasons to celebrate. You sure do. I mean, I saw the announcement, of course, and a pretty significant in, in, uh, injection of cash, some $750,000 coming for, from who for what? 
So the $750,000 is coming from the North Pine Foundation. Uh, North Pine Foundation is a national uh, philanthropic organization that uh, really tries to catalyze scalable outcomes uh, to provide socioeconomic solutions to underserved communities in, in Canada, but in particular uh, in this context for rural Newfoundland and Labrador. Yeah, we actually spoke with Mark Lane from the North Pine Foundation. I didn't even know it was a thing until we spoke with Mark. And there's been some pretty heavy money spent, not only here, but right across the country with some of the investments coming from a philanthropic, philanthropic company, or pardon me, family somewhere in Ontario. I can't remember their name. I think they're the folks behind Spotify. Okay, so when we look at small, medium-sized businesses in Atlanta, Canada, specifically this province, issues with the numbers of employees and what it looks like for scalability in the future, how are you going to focus this money? So what we what we uh, learned uh, through our research, in particular, um, when it comes to small and medium-sized businesses, so Newfoundland Labrador, uh, there's over 8,000 uh, small businesses that uh, <clears throat> employ between one and four employees. Uh, we also know, extrapolating from research done by the Canadian Federation of Independent Businesses, as well as some follow-up reports from the Atlantic CBDCs, that uh, upwards of 55% of the owners of these businesses are looking at retirement. Uh, here, in Newfoundland Labrador, if you break down the numbers, that's uh, that's potentially uh, thousands, uh, up to 4,000 businesses that are potentially looking to exit within the next uh, five to 10 years. And of course, with 69% of them citing retirement. So that means that across our province, Newfoundland Labrador right now, particularly in rural areas, there's thousands of small businesses that are looking to retire. And so from the exact same uh, studies, uh, motivation for uh, what happens during the sale was also discovered. And so one of the two reasons, uh, one of the two reasons and, um, and variables when business owners are selling that they're hoping to achieve is, of course, to maximize their sale, but also to keep their employees employed and keep the business in community. So this represents a tremendous opportunity uh, for buyers, uh, particularly in rural parts of our province. So where do we come in? Uh, so essentially, right across Newfoundland Labrador, we have uh, charities, nonprofits, uh, your local organizations, uh, committees, and groups um, who are looking at uh, opportunities for revenue diversification. So, what our project or what our pilot will do is to successfully convert for-profit businesses sellers um, by matching them with uh, not-for-profit buyers uh, in a variety of social enterprise models. Before we get into some of who the partners might be, credit unions, it sounds like, is a key one. Uh, How can you leverage this money? Because cash on the barrel head and matching funds from different organizations, different levels of government might make 750, 1.7 million. So is there matching or leverage opportunities? There's absolutely leverage opportunities, and uh, the way that we're approaching this is uh, any uh, any interesting interested party that are out there that are interested in helping us catalyze and scale uh, the pilot and this project are very welcome to the table. What would be the upside for a business owner in an SME, you know, one or four employees, want to keep them employed, trying to cash out to retire? What's the upside for that to be created into or transformed from a private sector small business to a not-for-profit social enterprise? Or or to a social enterprise, I should say. So there's a couple things, and as as we mentioned before, it's the ensuring that the employees stay with the business, it's ensuring that the business stays in the community or the venture stays in the community, but there's also there's also 
also the uh, other benefits of being able to support uh, the communities that are around that business, are responsible for the success of the business, and the, and the business is responsible for the success of the community. So there's a legacy piece that's uh, a part of this, uh, but it's also that, that great feeling that you get when you know that what you built continues on and is able to amplify its impact. I don't think there's a really, really well-rounded understanding of what a social enterprise means. I think many people simply think, well, I've gone from generating profit to uh, now I'm a charity. And so with a charity comes limited economic growth. But that's not necessarily true. No, it's not. And the definition of a social enterprise has uh, has shifted and evolved uh, over time. And so what I simply tell people, it's, it's uh, when you're thinking about social entrepreneurship, uh, it's really profit with a purpose. And so uh, in a typical for-profit sense, you know, you're driving to the bottom line. You're maximizing profit. You're increasing sales. You're decreasing expenses. You're maximizing uh, your cost goods. You're trying to maximize profit as much as possible. A social enterprise takes that concept and adds uh, a very equal, if not greater, uh, focus on the impact or the purpose of why that organization or why that entity exists. So to give you a tangible example, so a social enterprise cafe, for example, um, that may employ uh, uh, members of a particular group of the population that that organization is trying to support, so provides meaningful employment, provides engagement with the public, uh, uh, helps with soft skill development, uh, hard skill development, and so uh, that's one example what a social enterprise could look like. How do you measure success? Because I'm all about that. So if we say 55% of these SMEs, small and medium-sized businesses, are looking at a potential end of story in the next five years, is it about rescuing them to the tune of 50% of 55? Or is there a way that you measure it? Or is it simply about how you turn the $750,000 into X number of millions of economic growth over X number of years? How do you view, because we have to be able to measure whether or not we're on the right track. You're absolutely right. And so for us to measure success is not taking it from the global number and trying to uh, figure out, okay, this per we're going to save this percentage of, uh, of businesses in uh, rural Newfoundland Labdor and, um, and as a result support this many new social enterprises supporting the community sector groups and organizations. For us, we're testing a concept, uh, hence, the, hence the pilot. And so we hope to, through this pilot, that we can support the conversion of up to uh, 15 uh, businesses into not-for-profits or, or being purchased by not-for-profits to, one, have a successful sale, uh, but two, to also create a new diversified revenue stream for those non-profits and charities that are providing such valuable community work. And so the goal is to work out the model and try something uh, a little bit different uh, to incubate uh, these ventures, to uh, get them attached to uh, social financing options as well in order to complete the sale. And uh, our hope is that we learn enough from the pilot that we'd be able to then take that concept and then scale it as much as we can. You won't be able to help everybody. So how does the hierarchy list look? Is it the potential for revenue uh, diversification that would be a key box to need, need to be checked? Or who would be the most likely recipients or partners? So in terms of recipients, partners, uh, we're keeping it pretty broad in terms of the actual ventures themselves. And so when you look at rural Newfoundland and Labrador, um, you, have, uh, you have some um, businesses that uh, are, are commonplace uh, wherever you go. Uh, so those are coming from the tourism sector, uh, hospitality, uh, the restaurant sector, uh, arts, uh, heritage. Um, I think about service-oriented organizations, uh, particularly in rural Newfoundland and Labrador, you know, your gas station, 
um, uh, your, 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 where you get your haircut. Um, these are models that people um, are able to see and able to understand uh, fairly uh, easily and, and simply. Uh, so those would make uh, a lot of sense. In terms of the nonprofits and uh, charities, uh, that would make a lot of sense for, um, for acquiring uh, these types of businesses. It would be those that are looking to improve their balance sheets, uh, ones that are looking at and willing to take on a bit of the risk associated with taking on a economic entity, uh, and those who are now looking for revenue diversification options. And so part of the pilot uh, and what we're developing, part of the pilot is to create those resources to support uh, the seller, what this means, but also the buying uh, nonprofit, uh, charity, or even cooperative uh, on what this means and how to manage the risk and how to manage the venture itself. So as part of the partners that we have on this project, we partner up with the Newfoundland Labdoor Federation of Cooperatives, um, who have been working uh, working with their federal counterparts on a cooperative uh, conversion model that uh, we hope to integrate into uh, this model as well. So really for us, the output is going to be uh, 15 uh, case studies, 15 learnings on how to actually do the process and then understanding, okay, the cost per, how do we then scale this beyond? Very quickly before I let you go, you know, in the concept of I'm the business owner and I'm set to retire, it might be a bit of a gruff or a base reference, but can I cash out? Uh, uh, say again. So I've owned, I've owned and operated this business forever. I'm trying to keep my employees on. I've been taking a meager salary. I've created some sort of asset. Can I actually cash out, or is this simply more of a transfer than an opportunity for me to further fund my retirement? Oh, so this will be a this will be a um, this will be an acquisition. Yeah. Okay. And so the purpose is to uh, is to not say to business owners, uh, look, you put your your blood, sweat, and tears into this place. This is your retirement. Uh, would you kindly uh, donate uh, the whole of your assets in your entire business? It's not the intention of this program. Right. Okay. Uh, the intention is to uh, help uh, help with the transaction, and that includes uh, everything from uh, advice on how to structure the deal. Uh, right to advice on what financing options are available, including the uh, the growing industry of social finance capital that's uh, being deployed across the country. I ask that specifically because some business owners might still, like me, have a misconception about a social enterprise might be, might be and how my blood, sweat, and tears private sector business has translates or has been acquired in this form. Uh, Colin, keep up the good work. I know you and I have got something scheduled for a little later in September as well. I look forward to it. Looking forward to it as always, Patty. Thank you so much. You're welcome, Colin. Bye-bye. Okay. There's Colin Corcoran. He's the CEO at the uh, Community Sector Council. Let's take a break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. little over our allotted break time with Mr. Corcoran, even though that's pretty important stuff. He mentioned one entity being the, the group representing the cooperatives in the province. There are some absolutely stellar examples of how co-ops have worked famously in different parts of the province, whether it be on Fogo Island with the fishing co-op, whether it be with the Labrador Shrimp Company. It's always been a wonder as to why the path of a co-op, what it might mean for joining forces as opposed to butting heads, sharing the burden, sharing the wealth might not be an answer for different parts of the province, especially in the fishery. Because when you see the example that has worked pretty well in those two aforementioned areas of the province, it's just a wonder it's not a bigger part of the conversation. It's probably well worth our while, Dave. You know, there's some, I think, base misconceptions or misunderstandings or myths surrounding things like social enterprises, like co-ops and the upside they may indeed present. So probably a good opportunity. I believe last week or the week before was co-op week. 
and we probably should have done it then, but it's never too late to bring on a guest like that to talk about what the co-ops look like, paint us a picture of where they have been successful and where some opportunities may lie, ongoing conversations with different industries and communities about a co-op coming to town. Another interesting concept of a co-op is a credit union. People seem to be pretty satisfied with it. Hurry, quick check on the Twitter before we get to the news and then consequently come back with your telephone call. We're VOCM Open Line. You know what to do. Follow us there. Email address is openline at VOCM.com. Let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about the appointment of Rob Greenwood. Long time at the Harris Center Memorial University, now Deputy Minister of Rural Development. Interesting appointment, a man who has been working in rural-related matters for decades. We're also going to talk about Newfoundland and Labrador housing, some of the issues we're regarding social housing and otherwise with the minister responsible provincially. Stanley's also there to talk about the indigenous office for the trades up in Happy Valley, Goose, Happy Valley Goose Bay. And I don't know how many times I've said the diamonds on Catalina, the crown lands, the diamonds on Catalina. Krista Diamond's in the queue. She's the daughter of Pauline and Randy that really kickstarted this conversation. Don't go away. Nutrition, exercise, keeping the cold at bay. Whatever keeps you feeling great, the wellness and healthy lifestyle show on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line one, Tom, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Good morning to you. I would like to start with uh, the appointment of Dr. Rob Greenwood to Deputy Minister of Rural and Regional Development and also Chief Economic Development Officer. Yep. Back in March of 2020, middle of March, I wrote a letter to the Premier and different MHAs and actively started pushing for the creation of a Chief Economic Officer. And, and and I've taken a little bit of criticism because, um, you know, I, it was like a harebrained idea. But but the, how they've kind of packaged this now as a chief economic development officer wasn't really the, my original intention, which was chief economic officer would be an independent officer who would uh, give the residents of Newfoundland Labrador the straight facts, the you know, the actual economic realities and would have, you know, like the chief information officer or whatever, would have that independence so I just wanted to clarify, you know, I'm not saying that Dr. Greenwood's not a good choice for such a position, but I'm not so sure it was framed the way that I originally intended it. So Ed Olive keeps bringing up the tweet that I made on March the 27th that calling for the chief economic officer. But my my intention was, as I described, to be more of an independent officer, not necessarily another bureaucrat. Well, I'm not so sure this appointment is because of your letter or a tweet, but, I mean, the work that Rob Greenwood has done with rural-related matters is undeniable. I mean, the public policy forums that have been happening around the province uh, while he's been at the Harris Center, the Vital Science Report, the Rural Roads Podcast, up and down the, the line, I think that he brings a significant amount of horsepower to that position, just from where I sit. Exactly, but again, I, I just think we need to be cautious that the Messiah concept is not really the, the solution, especially if it is along the lines of, I guess, more of the same, continuing to kick the hand grenade down the road and maybe not trying to call for individual responsibility and, and kind of a change in the tone of how we all approach our incredible province. And yeah, so I mean, that's basically my concern. Like, you know, as I see, we've added Dr. Greg O'Leary now is the Deputy Minister of Education Transformation. We've got Dr. Pat Parfrey, Health Transformation. And, you know, these things are kind of happening in the shadows. And, uh, you know, when we had the Health Accord, it was an, ex an excellent example with Dr. Parfrey, obviously, co-chaired, of how to try and manage transformation where you have uh, open discussion that is 
free for everybody to see and and it was it was so broad based i mean they were on your show many many times and 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 also it was a great forum to be able to participate in it i you know i just call on you know the the different political uh masters and the bureaucracy to try and mimic how health accord went because obviously the pert report was the opposite <clears throat> it was kind of in the shadows and there wasn't that broad-based consultation which would cause which caused key stakeholders for example labor to not even participate in it and to actually reject its its outcome so you know it's just hopefully we can learn from the dichotomy of those two um ways of going about doing things i want i want to move over to uh kind of try and tie that together because a lot of times when we have change agents that are in our public service, I want to use a very specific example, retired Chief Joe Boland, who has come out recently uh, kind of highlighting the challenges that he that he experienced. So, you know, Chief Boland was the president of the RNCA at one point, and then he then made his way up and to the rank of chief of the RNC. And, and in his comments, he indicated that he was attempting to root out some of the bullying and inappropriate behavior, as well as try and uh, try and make real differences within the community and kind of interweave the RNC's um, impact so that it was more, I guess, more responsive to a lot of these really socioeconomic issues that we're seeing play out in, with addictions or with uh, domestic abuse and things like that, as well as trying to... Um, when they had injured officers to try and accommodate them, and and all that resulted, in, and I, you know, he's a friend of ours, and he's part of our push for the for the child safety program in in schools, and because he was my wife and I met with him first, and he was like a founding member of trying to get the kids and no program integrated into the education system. So you know, everybody who knows him will generally only has good things to say about him. He's just a diligent. Uh, and an amazing human being. And so, you know, he experienced this pushback, broad-based pushback, first of all, from his rank and file and the RNCA, and then some bureaucratic pushback, and, and then finally what he felt was like lack of support from political, from the political, political leadership. And, and whenever we're trying to make changes within the province, we need to realize that change won't, we will not have change unless we involve all those parties that I just indicated, but also they all have to be on board for the change. Everybody, if it's not obvious to everybody, everything, most things seem to be um, declining or falling apart or however you want to, whatever way you want to measure it. And that obviously means that whatever we've done in the past is not leading us to a more prosperous or sustainable or healthier future. And so, you know, all these people who we hire to, 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 uh, bring about positive change. They need to be supported and not ran out the door like Chief Bolam was. Uh, you know, and, and I think that that's, that's a bad message. And I think, you know, to other people who want to be part of change that, you know, if you rock the boat too much and you get on the bad side of labor or on the bureaucracy or politicians, then you're gone. Uh, you know, we're not going to fire you directly, but we'll just make your job so difficult that if you really want to make a difference, then you can no longer do it effectively. Uh, and I think that's what we did there. There was a lot of in-house push as well, whether or not it was legitimate and the polling that went out from the association to the rank and file about their 
their thoughts on Mr. Boland's, then Chief Boland's leadership. So I think there was a, a bunch of factors pushing against uh, Joe at that time. Uh, what does any of that, just maybe I missed something, what does any of that have to do with world energy? Because that's what's on my okay. subject line, and I, and I thought that's what you right. said you were going to try to tie together. Well, well, no, actually, there was a few things I just tried to tie together as well. I tie together on that side. First, World Energy GH2, uh, with their latest proposal now, they've indicated they'd like to have a tie-in to, um, to our grid, 155 megawatts grid connection with 10 megawatts of firm capacity. I actually don't have any problem with, with any of that. However, um, it's, it's interesting in that for green, for green hydrogen, there's a 40% refundable tax credit. So people need to kind of wrap their head around it. If they spend a billion dollars, they're going to get a $400 million tax credit. I don't know if they get to keep that or if that somehow gets factored into the financing, but that's an interesting question. However, the production of green uh, electricity is only a 15% credit. So it, it's kind of like I, I, in my mind when I'm looking at this, I'm thinking because one of the benefits to wind is that um, generally um, when the wind is blowing, it's generally when we have the most thermal loss during the winter. And that's also the time when World GH2 will have the most surpluses in the winter. So it actually is a really nice tie-in to have us tied in to them if that's part of the deal. But because of the way the tax credits are formulated, I guess that can't be a conversation. But it would be very interesting to be a fly on the wall to know whether or not that somehow is being factored into the bigger scheme of things with, with any of the wind, uh, wind projects, not just obviously the one on the Port of Port Peninsula. So you know, just kind of like food for thought that that's really – really what I want to say about that. But that was just, uh, that's not something I've heard before. Because if they're going to tie into the grid to, for us to give them power, especially in the beginning, because their plan is actually to have the have the, the uh, electrolysis facility built while they're building while they're building their wind turbines and be tied into our grid to start producing power using our power before they start producing them. But then the same thing in reverse, if they're because they're going to have twice as much capacity to produce power as they need. So, you know, I just want to throw that into the mix, and I haven't heard anybody. Yeah, I threw it in there this morning right off the top of the show talking about it. It's one of the great unknowns. It's the implication to our grid with whether it be their excess power or access to our power. That's something that I've asked a couple of times, and it's still a lot of the uh, part of the unknowns that are still out there. So whether it be for Mr. Risley or the folks behind Exploits Valley or the folks behind Pattern Energy, anyone who's going to tie into the grid, those are huge questions because we don't even understand what Muskrat's going to look like in the future regarding my rates. And then further, it gets complicated by excess power and or drawing of power. Questions to be asked. I appreciate the time, Tom. Okay. Stay safe. Take care. Take care. Bye-bye. All right. Uh, let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, we are do what? Uh, Kristen Diamond. She's going to be absolutely one of the next calls talking about the plight of her parents on Catalina. And Stanley Oliver is the manager of Indigenous Office for Trades and L up in Happy Valley Goose Bay. And we're going to talk social housing with the Minister of Children, Seniors and Social Development. That's Paul Pike. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number five. Second more to the Liberal member elected in and serving the folks of Buren Grand Bank. He's the minister responsible for children, seniors and social development, as well as the Newfoundland and Labrador Housing Corporation. That's Paul Pike. Good morning, Minister Pike. You're on the air. Uh, good morning, Patty. Um, sitting here on the side of the road listening to your show. It's a great show again, as usual. Um, Patty, calling in uh, about, uh, you know, uh, uh, housing, uh, which is certainly under my uh, portfolio. And, uh, like, we all realize, you know, how important uh, safe, affordable, and uh, appropriate housing uh, is to the health and well-being of all Newfoundlanders and Labradorians. And that's why we're so focused 
on uh, creating housing solutions in all areas of our province. Uh, Patty, just some uh, stats I'd like to throw out there this morning to you and your listeners. At the end of uh, July 2023, we had uh, 213 of, of uh, the over 5,500 uh, NLHC uh, owned units in the province. That's, that's quite a number, really, when you think about it. So just for the, so I heard that properly, out of the over 5,000 units, there's only 213 that are vacant? No, uh, these are the units that uh, were either in the process of being ready for occupancy or we're ready for occupancy and applicants have been notified. Now these applicants, Patty, have been notified of a move-in date or we're in the process of moving to a unit. So these 213 individuals are out there waiting uh, for these units to be completed. And we have contractors in place and, and hopefully they've already got their move-in dates by now. So, and as well, uh, you know, these applicants have been uh, have been told that yes, you're going to get a unit. We have we have people working there, so hopefully we'll get it done sooner rather than later. So, Patty, really, this represents uh, less than four percent of our housing portfolio right now. And like I said, that's well over five thousand five hundred. Now there are additional one hundred and forty three units requiring uh, uh, major repairs. Uh, of which of those, Patty, we have 68 are funded and scheduled to be completed within the range of 3 to 12 months. Uh, 36 of those are in an area for which a redevelopment plan was completed and an application has been advanced to the federal government for cost sharing. We have 20 units in areas with no demand, and the remaining 19 units out of that 143 uh, Patty, were recently sold and are being redeveloped into rental units. Are those units that have been sold to a private developer in Central? Uh, they are uh, uh, Central. I, I know that the, uh, on the Bjorn Peninsula we have some. In St. John's we have some. And I think in Central as well. Pretty sure, Patty. Yeah, because uh, the numbers I, I've heard is that there is, uh, in Grand Falls, Windsor in particular, a number of units have been sold yeah. to a private developer for repurposing. That repurposing didn't necessarily uh, distinguish between putting up condos or affordable units or what have you. So is there part of the contract that ensures the property is used for similar type of housing, affordable uh, units in particular? Yes, uh, that's, that's part of it. Uh, and, and again... What we're looking at here is, uh, you know, we have uh, a large number of people that we provide assistance to. We have strong partnerships with the community, and uh, we've uh, supported uh, a, a large number of people uh, over the la uh, last little while uh, for uh, rental subsidies. Patty, uh, the, I think Budget 2023 included investments of... Uh, $70 million of us in capital repairs and maintenance, including a um, $1 million for uh, major repair vacancies. Uh, you know, and we have vacancies happening uh, pretty much on a daily basis, and we have people looking to move on a daily basis pretty much. But we, uh, we are prioritizing investments to repair and preserve existing uh, units that we have. Uh, just to look at... Um, you know, over the last two years, uh, your listeners 
will probably be a little uh, as I was when I when I learned this number when I first uh, became minister. You know, we've had 750 new housing options uh, province-wide been created or, or underway in the last two years. So, I mean, that's a large number. This includes the uh, new 74 uh, Canada, Newfoundland, and Labrador housing benefit. And that, uh, Petty, expands uh, portable rental assistance uh, in the private rental market to an additional 800 households. So to answer your question, that's something that if if people go into these uh, rental units, uh, we will certainly, over the last six years, for example, we have 450 uh, people getting those benefits provided to date, and we have another 350 to go. So to answer your question, if these units, like we will subsidize these units for low-income people, these private units. Um, what else? Yeah, the uh, the uh, construction has been completed or underway on over a hundred new units, uh, Patty, in the last few years. Um, just to look at the social social housing part and the and what we're doing here in the, in St. John's. Um, We've uh, partnered with the gathering place as well uh, to open 30 shelters, shelter beds. And uh, uh, last week on Thursday, uh, I went to gathering place to view the uh, additional uh, 10 shelter beds that are being put in there, plus 56 supportive uh, housing units. And those renovations are underway, and they're hoping to, uh, by, by this time next summer, we're hoping that that will be complete, and that will take care of a lot of issues in that area, within the St. John's region, the Avalon region. Uh, we supported 20 supportive uh, housing units in the Center of Hope. Uh, and that is, not, like, we're, we're doing this all over the province. Like, uh, a few weeks ago, I was in Happy Valley Goose Bay, where, where we uh, opened four uh, new units there. And we also announced the building of 16 more. Uh, so, you know, we're, we're, we're expanding our, our, our uh, housing portfolio as well as, uh, you know, emergency shelter beds in the province. Um, we uh, support, uh, support uh, 2,000 uh, low-income homeowners to complete home repairs, accessibility modifications, and um, energy efficiency uh, retrofits, right? So, like, we're doing a lot of work in those areas. And in the last couple of years, uh, 2,000 individuals and families have uh, accessed permanent housing thanks to the new plan Labrador housing uh, programs. So they're doing a lot. Tomorrow we're traveling to uh, Labrador City to uh, look at housing development uh, in for, uh, for the Labrador uh, uh, Wabush area, Labrador West. So we have meetings set up down there, and we're quite confident that we're going to be able to make some announcements down there within the coming weeks. Uh, so we're we're get, we're going all over the province, and uh, you know, um, last week as well, <clears throat> I had the opportunity uh, to meet with the uh, with the federal minister, and uh, we talked about uh, programs. And one of the things, one of the first things he said to us, Patty, was, uh, you know, there's uh, so much, uh, you know, he said he he's doing a cross Canada tour. 
and I get I think he was on your program a couple of times. I heard him once for sure. And uh, you know, he talked about what needs to be done and the great uh, you know uh, amount of work needs to be done when it comes to housing in our country. And uh, we want to get out ahead of that, Patty. Uh, you know, our our government is committed to getting out ahead of that. We're we're constantly looking at ways to work with the federal government to enhance the, the uh, current number of units and the current number of rentals and our social, the uh, current number of emergency shelter. We're trying to, uh, we're looking at homelessness and so on. And we're doing everything we can. And uh, the minister was quite, uh, was, was uh, you know, really impressed with our, uh, with our plans for the future. And, uh, you know, like he was, he was uh, certainly w- willing to, uh, to help us in any way. So that was a, a good thing. And we're moving as fast as we can uh, to, uh, to battle this uh, shortage in, 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 in homes in this province. Yeah. Coming up with a database that reflects the need is important because understanding the need will help create uh, reasonable policy. But what we don't have is, you know, if 10 cents of every federal tax dollar flows to municipalities where some of the, shoulder, some of the burden will be shouldered and no long-term modeling, we can establish the need, but unless we have an actual firm, multi-level government approach with a long-term model where we can measure whether or not we're going to hit the target of 5.8 million homes by 2030, then we are, it's the epitome of Band-Aid. So that's some of that is the responsibility of Sean Fraser, who was on this program last week. But until, you know, all levels of government need to do a better job acknowledging exactly what their role is, as opposed to the Fed shrugging their shoulders. And then we talk about authority for zoning and regulatory issues at the municipal level. And then the province will have some cooperation with the feds and matching funds and that kind of stuff. It's all part of it, but we don't have a long range model. We simply do not. In other countries that are dealing with housing issues, I can go online and find a 20-year plan in different countries in Europe, right? And they're measuring success. So until we do that, you know, the compilation of data for need is the way to create good policy. Uh, before, uh, unfortunately, we run out of time because we're into the news break, but there's other issues inside your portfolios that I'd like to talk to you with. Maybe in the next week or so, we'll reach back out to your office, see if we can have you back on. That'd be great, Patty. And all I can say is that, you know, there's lots of good work going on in the housing this, uh, the housing uh, markets and uh, lots of good work going on with our government and we uh, certainly uh, look forward to uh, making some uh, some great announcements in the in the coming weeks and months so thank you very much for your time and i'd certainly welcome to to uh, you know you to get in touch and uh, i'll go on your program at any time appreciate the time safe travels uh, thank you. Bye. Bye. It's Paul Pike, member for Bureau Grand Bank, Minister of Children, Senior Social Development, and the Housing Corp. Some updated numbers on vacancies and renos and availabilities inside that envelope, and still plenty more inside his other, I would consider, top line portfolio. I uh, appreciate the patience of everyone in the queue. We'll get to you right after this. That includes Stanley Oliver, who will kick it off. He's the manager at the Indigenous Office for Trades and now up in Happy Valley Goose Bay, HVGB. And then we're talking with you. Don't go away. Start your day off right. Get the latest updates on news, traffic, and weather conditions, plus interviews with today's newsmakers, your go-to source before you get on the go. 5.30 to 9 a.m. weekdays, your VOCM mornings. Welcome back. Let's go. Line number four. Good morning, Stanley Oliver, the manager of the Indigenous Office for Trades and Ellen. Happy Valley Goose Bay. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Doing great, sir. I appreciate your patience. No problem. No problem raising at all. 
the reason I'm calling today is uh, our last conversation was uh, during March. We talked about uh, some of our community giving program that we gave some money away up in Labrador through uh, Trades and L. And at that time, Patty, we had talked about the expansion of our offices through the Indigenous uh, activities and affairs of Trades and L. And uh, so we're happy to report since that time we've opened a new office in uh, Cornerbrook. So we have an office that uh, services the uh, Indigenous people of Newfoundland on that West Coast portion. And we also hire two new people in our St. John's office to uh, better serve the Indigenous people on the Avalon. So, you know, we're happy to re- report that. But the, also, the I guess, the purpose of the call today was to tell you about um, uh, courses that we put off to all um, trades members in uh, throughout the province is available. We do it uh, at our uh, expense, and we do uh, courses that are focused on computer basics, iPhone basics, financial basics, and some leadership uh, initiatives. And this is uh, done throughout the whole province, and we'll be in uh, Lab West on September 13th and 14th to deliver those courses with a qualified uh, instructor. Uh, his name is Jody, he's a welder, a tradesperson, journey person for many, many years, very knowledgeable in uh, all these courses. So we were there on the 13th and 14th. We encourage people to, you know, to call us. Uh, if it's okay with you, I can give the number. Sure. And, uh, or uh, look us up on our um, Facebook site and our Twitter site and all those uh, great social media sites. We're at uh, 709-896-0394, and you can register online or you can call that number and they'll help you to register. So, you know, uh, we're moving ahead as Trades and L, our Indigenous office, and uh, we're happy to uh, start be able to deliver these courses throughout the province. What kind of demand are you trying to satisfy? Because we've seen labor shortages, especially in the trades, whether it be for home building or any of these mega projects. So what kind of demand are your offices seeing? And that is exactly the point. I mean, we're, we know that research has shown there will be a, a large deficit in, in skilled trades throughout the province, throughout the country. Research has shown that. So this is a part of uh, delivering, uh, you know, to make people more employable, to improve their skill set in the workplace, make workers gain more experience in these types of initiatives. It's not only about, you know, hammer and nails and hauling wire and, and welding and that sort of stuff, but it's also about those what we call soft skills that uh, people today need that technology so it makes them more employable it helps build career growth strategies in light of where the province is going and all the work that's coming so again you know it's about making trade people more employable to upskill their skills their knowledge and their experience in these types of things you know, we've had uh, issues where with big reliance on mega projects, and then it's that boom and bust. They get a job, they work for a couple of years, and they look for jobs in Alberta or elsewhere in the country. But now we've got a funny problem, I'll call it, that when and if many of these things, we're going to have to fast-track housing. But even if you just look at the work that was done at Bull Arm on the FPSO, the potential, what I would imagine, at least a half a dozen of these wind projects likely to get the next wave of approval. We're not even going to be able to fill all the jobs. So the soft skills and or the path towards Red Seal, there looks like there's a trades future that's pretty bright here in the next, I don't know what the time frame might be, but certainly in the next 10 years plus for permanent, full-time, well-paying jobs throughout a gamut, the full gamut of the world of the trades. Uh, Give the contact information out one more time before we run out of time, Stanley. 
It's 709-896-0394, and you can also look us up on our, our uh, Facebook site and, and uh, of course, our, uh, our website on Trades and L. Keep but, up the uh, good work. Yeah, yeah thank you uh, for the opportunity. Stay in touch. Okay, bye-bye. Okay, bye, Stanley. Stanley Oliver is the manager of Indigenous Office for Trades NL. Uh, let's go. What do you want me to do, Dave? You want me to take a break early, come back and wrap it up with our two callers? Okay. Yeah, it's amazing to know that when we do indeed have a pressure on the healthcare system, pressure on housing, pressure on daycare, pressure on a variety of facets that government has either full or partial involvement, even with immediate attention some of these issues are not, are going to be people are going to pretend that it's all about money when in fact it's all about governance and governance can be done very efficiently we're not very good at that in this country you know we're good at spending money we're not that great at satisfying the actual intended outcomes and how we get there and how we should be getting there a couple of really difficult topics that have come up in the recent past one based on a rally talking about the issue of mental health and addictions and well-intentioned positions have turned themselves into pretty, I would consider, dangerous practice. We're going to talk about that. And then Krista Diamond, you stay right there. We're going to talk crown lands with her. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number three. Say good morning to the NDP member for St. John Center. He's the leader of the provincial party. That's Jim Din. Jim, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Thank you for having me. No problem. <coughs> Just want to uh, pick up on this, uh, the topic you had aired uh you had on your show yesterday with regards to uh, mental health, uh, the rally, uh, and where we need to be going, and maybe even tie it in a little bit with the announced uh, the interview you had with Paul Pike there a short while ago. Look, uh, I will say this uh, as a <clears throat> from my, my my work here as as the MHA and from my time as an uh, as a teacher that uh, addictions and mental health often go hand in hand. They're in, intertwined in many ways. Pretty complicated. Uh, it's definitely going to require uh, money to fix to some way, and it's, and it's also going to require how we. Uh, it's also going to require, I guess, as you said, governance and how we approach this. As far as I can see, uh, you know, I, you know, simply going down and trying to rescue people um, is not necessarily the answer. I understand the, uh, er, as a parent, the need to protect uh, one's uh, loved ones I, and, and children. I understand that totally. But I will tell you that uh, human beings themselves are complex, and, and there's no, not always a simple solution. And we have organizations out there that are that are working in this day in day out. They have that expertise. Uh, I encountered it last week. We did have, when I was down the, uh, uh, going through a part of my district with the uh, Minister Pike, uh, a person drove up wanting to know where the people who worked on the street were. Uh, by this time, a lot of uh, had gone to ground. They were, they were, they felt harassed and uh, they were afraid of what was happening. So it, it didn't, uh, I, it, the approach didn't work. And my concern is is that the the when we're looking for simple solutions to complex problems, um, we're going to make matters work. But I do think, and and, um, and when I when I spoke to that rally, there are a number of things that we can be doing, and there's a need for a continuum of supports, um, and uh, to make sure that people have uh, have uh, people and families have the access that uh, have the supports that they need. We we can start with first of all, uh, filling the 99 vacant social work. Positions that uh, in CSSC, uh, which work with families, which also work with schools. Uh, 
I will tell you from the school system. I'm, I heard last year from uh, from uh, more than uh, uh, from junior high teachers of the uh, drug issue in the junior high where you, there was traffic and selling taking place. So keep in mind too that some of the students who come to the school are probably coming from families where mental health and or addictions are an issue. So it's what kind of what are the supports we putting where are we putting in place in the school system, whether it's lower class, uh, uh, smaller class sizes, so teachers can. Uh, have that uh, have that uh, the greater one-on-one -on -one with student, or the uh, increase in the number of, of school counselors who are dealing with these issues, uh, mental health and addictions issues. Uh, I think also, Patty, it goes hand in hand as well with the look at the addiction programs, uh, funding, making sure that addictions programs are, are funded and are available for people who who uh, need them when they need them, where they need them, instead of having to wait for the uh, the. Uh, the the, uh, the supports or uh, being put on a wait list. I think families also, families of people who are going through addictions, mental health issues, they need the support because they are they are struggling uh, with, uh, with watching their their loved ones suffer. So it's it, it, there's a suite of a uh, 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 I guess of uh, solutions here, but it's going to require the political will. Okay, where do we need uh, to go? Who do we need to listen to? Um, I will tell you also. I think housing is very key to this affordable, stable housing. I will. I listened to Minister Pike talk about uh, the. Uh, it, it, it seems that the the solution that that the, the problem is not as bad as it uh, as it is. I, I maybe I heard him incorrectly, but I can tell you that it's become. Uh, I think the greatest source of frustration for me, my uh, my constituency assistant, for my, uh, my for my two other colleagues, in trying to get people into a, a stable housing uh, and into affordable housing, <clears throat> into where they're not facing eviction or, or facing uh, high rental uh, increases. So I think it's some way along those lines that's got to be addressed. Uh, and and uh, otherwise, if this problem is getting better, as the minister seems to suggest, why is it we're seeing increasing rates? of homelessness. Why are we seeing uh, Ukrainian people who are, uh, are newcomers uh, still struggling to find a place to live? Why are we finding that people who are evicted are forced into shelter or onto the street? So uh, to me, it, that's part of it. Also, I think when it comes to housing, it's I think when we look at and listen to your, the interview with the, the lady on the Buren Peninsula, uh, it's about the supportive piece as well, because there are people with complex needs, people who have uh, troubled histories who need supports. It's those wraparound services, and I'll go back to the need for a continuum of support. Uh, it's, Just very quickly, yep. the, the issue of the numbers of units, I mean... Math is helpful, but math doesn't paint the entire picture. If we look at just, for instance, where I live in this city, yep. if we talk about the number of units that we needed three years ago, that number is different today. Yep. Whether it be because of newcomers or people from other parts of the country or other parts of the province moving closer to amenities and service and health care. So if the need was for X units three years ago, it's X times two or three or four at this moment. So yep. just simply telling me the headline grabbing numbers does not paint the entirety of the picture. In fact, it only scratches the surface. No, and look, we, we, we got the numbers for the number of units that were vacant for Newfoundland Labrador housing last year. It hasn't changed a whole lot, but even if you were to, I guess, uh, in some ways uh, address, uh, get those up running this week, it still would only scratch the surface. But I think, you know, the, uh, it, you've heard, I know you've heard the stories, uh, and uh, it, it's, I, I'm just seeing the increase in number of people in shelters and the people who are chronically homelessness. There is an issue here within, and I, I'm looking at my district, but I know it's in Gander, I know it's in, uh, in, uh, in 
in, in, in the district, Leal's district and uh, Jordan's district. It's about making, uh, what, what are the real issues here? What are the things that are preventing people from uh, um, be, uh, be staying home, uh, in, a, in stable housing? I think we need more along the lines of what you see at the Chesapeake Centre of Hope, uh, what's being proposed at the gathering place. Uh, but this problem... Uh, I'll keep putting out solutions, and I'll, and and we'll uh, we'll keep proposing the uh, where we need to go. But uh, right now, simply saying, here are the numbers that are in the ha- in Newfoundland Labrador housing. Here's how many pe- uh, units we're getting ready. It's still not addressing the issue that's out there. Jim, very quickly before I have to sw- yeah. uh, squeeze one more on, let's talk about the whole. Uh, involuntary treatment and how that's manifested itself with targeting people around the street, sex workers, people using drugs, well-intentioned but very harmful. I had, look, I, 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 to me, I, I think when, as a teacher, I can tell you that uh, if you, even if you had well, uh, people who didn't have, uh, who were so-called well-adjusted and, and start forcing them into doing something, they're going to resist. But I will tell you that immediately following that, that rally, I had uh, a text from a person who works down uh, down there that we need help people are driving around pulling up and stopping us ask your names and telling us to come to get them out of drugs they have a scared to death we just want to be left alone and one person one young lady one, uh, was beaten up by her um, her uh, her uh, her pimp i guess uh, and black because he thought she was uh, ratting him out. Now, that's the text. So in many ways, as well-intentioned as it might be, and as I said, I understand the need to protect, and I understand the need to help, but this is not the approach. This is actually going it, to it drove people to ground. It's making them more afraid. And uh, the key, if you want to help people, make sure that the services are there when they need them, where they need them. And, uh, and that might mean, yes, uh, we're going to have to have a few more services. So it's so people aren't waiting, waiting two or three or four or five weeks to get the help they need. I have no interest in belittling or tearing people down who are suffering and they're grieving and this makes the conversation a little bit difficult but you know not bringing any uh, individuals names into this what we're doing is basically in essence people who have lived experience as the mother father grandmother grandfather what have you but intervention is a clinical issue it's not a street issue so if we think we're going to be able to help someone or tackle something or uh, help people through a process for a drug addiction to kick it and or uh, pathways out of sex work, what have you. That's why we have uh, actually specially trained mental health counselors, uh, healthcare clinicians. We have the folks that thrive. We have people that work in it and they know what they're doing and they know where the supports are simply opposed to saying, you're a sex worker, come with me, I can help. No, you can't. Because you're just someone who wants to help, but you're not equipped to do the help. So, yes. The most I can do, Patty, is put, if someone calls me, that is put them in contact with the people who, who, who are able to do this. 100%. I, I, don't, I don't profess to be that, that, that expert. And I will tell you right now, you look at also the people who had the lived experience as recovering, or, uh, uh, recovering addicts who have been through this issue. They are the ones who, uh, when they have that, mo- that perspective, they can actually say, here's what worked for me, uh, here's what wouldn't work and they'll tell you that but I'm not the expert I will put them in contact always with people who know uh, how to help people what we do know is that places where they're having a look at it it seems misguided and politically motivated were places where they actually do it there's very little evidence that it works at all in fact in places where there is the involuntary you know you go to a judge petition a judge someone's arrested who maybe didn't necessarily even commit a crime 
you force them into something, we see higher mortality rates. Yep. So it just doesn't work. It's very much akin to trying to beat the gay out of somebody, you know, or counsel the gay out of somebody. It doesn't work. It's cruel. If people don't want help, they can't be helped. No. So when they want help, we have people who know how to do it, where the resources are, how to re- uh, achieve a positive outcome, and this isn't it. No, and give those organizations out there that are working in this area and they're doing good work, give them the resources they need. It's it'll it's not the it's not the silver bullet, but you know what? It's going to have better results for sure. Absolutely, Jim. Appreciate the time this morning. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. Take care. Bye, bye, Jim Din, the NDP member for St. John's Centre and the leader of the provincial New Democratic Party. All right, uh, pretty good show today. And I mean, there's always a lot on tap. And again, when it comes to people sharing info based on emotion, and we all get it, and there is no opportunity for ridicule or personally disparaging one person or another about what they're trying to do, thinking that they're trying to make a positive difference. The fact of the matter is, it's having the adverse effect, the opposite effect. So those conversations are worthwhile, and it's not in an effort to condemn, it's in an effort to try to flesh it out, to see where we are, what it looks like, and how it works or doesn't in other jurisdictions. All right, last check-in on the Twitter, we're VOCM Open Line, you know what to do. Email address is openline at vocm.com, and we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.